This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Mark Pingator of the Pagan Babies. Today is April 18th, 2014. It is my brother's 40th birthday. Uh, we are conducting this interview at my home here in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Mark. Hi, Joseph. Hi. I am well, thanks. Uh, I know you didn't come up to Philadelphia expressly to do this interview. No. Uh, so what are you here for? Uh, I'm here today for uh, band practice. Peg Babies are going to be practicing for uh, a couple of upcoming shows that we're going to be doing. We're planning on May 3rd with Thorzine. They're doing a reunion show with The Fire. And then on May 28th, we're also playing with The Attics at TLA. Yeah, nice. How did you get on The Attics show? Somebody asked us to play. Yeah, I know. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like how this all works. Are you a fan of the band? Um... It's funny, addicts are somebody who are always on the peripheral of dress like punk clowns, rock vision. Right? There was that clown slash clockwork orange thing that was going on. Um, you know, they had a classic punk sound for the time and mm-hmm. uh, always thought it was interesting. I, I remember a band from Ipswich, which is where the addicts are from. Uh, more than I remember the addicts were from Ipswich, but that's the band called the Stupids. Mm-hmm. Um, which were oh, I remember the Stupids. Yeah, they were, they were really fast. They yeah. were kind of like around 86, 87 or so. That's right. Yeah. Proof Green Vacation was their uh, better LP, and they had Violent Nun was a 7-inch that they put out, and uh, became Pen Pals with the drummer from the band. He mm-hmm. wound up working at Toxic Shock out in Pomona, California. Toxic. Were they in Arizona for a while? Uh, Toxic Shock, Maybe. I know he I was he was working in a distribution out there with them. Okay. So. For some reason, I had Tucson, Arizona in my head because I know I had some of the records from the label, and I used to order from them in yeah. like mid to late. Isn't that funny so. how you remember all of that stuff just by because there was no internet. You just wrote labels and oh, you wrote oh, yeah. addresses and, and all lots that and stuff. lots of that. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you were doing the tape trading with the stupid guy. Uh, I was doing the tape trading, and I um I had a really interesting friendship that had developed with a uh, a guy by the name of Anders Holmquist. Um, from Sweden and um, I used to do the scene reports for Maximum Rock and Roll and I used to get letters from people like all over the world which is a pretty cool thing about doing the scene report Um, but this kid Anders took the initiative to send me a box of records Mm -hmm. with the hope that I in turn would send him a box of records which I did and and for two or three years we just sent each other records what sort of stuff was he sending you? uh, he was sending me a Swedish hardcore, uh, Rofsvat and Tervet Cadet from Finland, and uh, Puke was also another band. There's just scores and scores of albums, in it. and a lot of them were hit and miss, um, but some of them were just amazing records. Yeah, I, li- I like a lot yeah. of that stuff. Do you still have the records? Still have them all. Oh, I have good, every because... one of my records that I ever had. Yeah, Finnish and Swedish hardcore has never gone out of favor, like amongst collectors and fans. I mean, you could probably sell those for lots of bucks if they're right. a shape. if I want to. But... Yeah, don't do it. Don't no, do it. I, <laughs> I still have, I mean, like a original Tervet Cadet 7-inch uh, that Pusshead had done the artwork. I have like one of the probably an original pressing of that because again it was just like stuff is being thrown in the mail and I'm getting it and then I'm over here and I'm just boxing up like you know Philly stuff and New York stuff and DC stuff and sticking it in a box and send it back to him and you know was, have you ever heard from this guy since then I haven't heard from from this guy since eighty seven or eighty eight maybe mm-hmm. that was that was it we just faded away and Man. yeah. But I always remember his name, Anders Holmquist. Yeah. He, he got a thank you on a first pagan, maybe seven inch. Very so, nice. Just because he was a cool record trading friend of mine. Absolutely. 
Uh, so I guess we'll go back to the beginning, your birth. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 19th, January 18th, 1967. And it was where, a snowy day. Yeah. Uh, I, I was born at the Frankfurt Hospital on Frankfurt Avenue. Um, not the Tarsdale Division, which is a point of differentiation between most people. You'd say they were born in Frankfurt, but they weren't. But <laughs> no. Um, yeah, that's my humble beginnings. And did you grow up in that area? I grew up in Frankfurt, yeah. Okay. Uh, right near the Bridge and Pratt. Uh, L stop. So, the bus barn was very loud in the distance, and yeah, I I lived there for uh, first nineteen years of my life. All right. Uh, what did your parents do? Uh, my dad was a fireman. Uh, he's a retired fireman. My mom, classic housewife. Mm-hmm. Uh, four kids. I have two older brothers and an older sister, and um, lived a pretty uh, pretty Philadelphia neighborhood life mm-hmm. growing up in Frankfurt. Right, very good. Uh, so what were your interests as, as a young man? Uh, as a young man, I was, uh, my dream was to grow up and be a football player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to play for the Oakland Raiders, and I was pretty confident that I was going to do that, but yeah. I didn't work out for me <laughs> at all. Height was uh, never, uh, never anything that was a strong suit of mine, mm-hmm. diminutive by nature. Um, there's still hope on that. I'm, I'm hoping sure, the same thing for myself. Sure. Uh, I, I got over it. Um, I play. I played a lot of football when I was growing up, um, so there was some sort of foundation to that dream of doing it as a career. Um, but when I was told I was, I was trying out for a team called the Little Quakers, they were a traveling team. They traveled around the country and um, made it to the last cut. And the guy said something like, "I, I just beat somebody doing the 40." Uh, I was wearing full uniform. He was not. He was just wearing a pair of shorts and a pair of running shoes. I had football spikes on, and I beat him by a full two or three yards. And, mm-hmm. and the coach said, "Man, it's a shame he's so small." And and I knew that was it. So uh, I'd always loved music, gone way back to as far as I can remember. Hard music, Alice Cooper, Uriah Heep, um, heavier bands, and um, that was always kind of. A part of my life, the music itself. I always equate like certain times of my life to whatever album I was listening to at the mm-hmm. time. So, um, sort of around '77, I was really into Kiss and stuff. Um, my dreams started to dissipate uh, in the realization that I was never going to be a football player. Um, and then air guitar became a pretty large part of my life. Air guitar. Air guitar. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely mean that too. Um, Were you particularly skilled at the air guitar? Uh, I was. I have two older brothers who used to um, think it was funny. Late at night, they would come home from doing whatever it is that teenage brothers do in the mid to late 70s. Bad stuff. Bad <laughs> stuff. bad stuff. And um, they'd come home, and they'd, they'd get me and put me on a milk crate and put headphones on, me. And um, then they would put a song on watch me play air guitar. So mm-hmm. I'd play air guitar to, like, Blue or Cold for their On Your Feet, On Your Knees live album or... Aerosmith Rocks or, again, some Uriah Heap or something like that. And I would, I was quite proficient right. doing whatever it was I was doing to cracking him up, but I loved it. So that was were, my little stage. Were your brothers the primary sources of this music that was, was coming into you at They the were, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I got uh, I got to see a lot of bands um, at an early age. My first concert was December 22nd, 1977. Saw Kiss and ACDC and Piper at the Spectrum. Uh, I love when people show. can remember the exact date. At the first concert, I remember like my first three concerts. That was my first concert. My second concert was uh, August 29th, 1970. 
79, and that was Black Sabbath and Van Halen. That was Van Halen's first tour and Ozzy's last tour with Black Sabbath. It was their 10th anniversary tour, the Never Say Die tour. Yeah. Still have the shirt from it, too. Wow, matter of fact. that's very impressive. Uh-huh. Um, so mu- music was like, it took a hold of my uh, my being. Records, I started collecting records going to, you know, if it wasn't just like... the Going into a regular record store, Sound Odyssey or American Pants, which was on um, Frankfurt Avenue, is where you went to get your records uh, before there was like used record stores. Um, I would just go there and just like peruse whoever I liked at the time or whatever I was listening to on the radio because that was the the main feed of of what I was getting. But then I was, I'd go down to the uh, Bridge and Pratt um, L stop there, and there was a couple of newsstands, and I would go through like. You know, while all the other kids my age were like looking at the porn magazines or trying to look behind the counter at the porn yeah, magazines, yeah. I was looking at like Rock Scene and Cream mm-hmm. and Trouser Press, all of those magazines up at the front, and I was like tearing them open and listen, you know, look at these bands, and I was going from like, you know, uh, Ted Nugent and Kiss and like all of this stuff, and and then at the time, uh, and this is like seventy seven and seventy eight, you started to see like um, Ramones and the Runaways. And all of these things had made it. They'd been around for a year or two, but they they made it into this mainstream, uh, into these mainstream publications, with the exception of Trouser Press, because that wasn't like a mainstream thing. That was just like this weird thing that sat off to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I started to like look at that in a different light than I looked at like Kiss, who was wearing like these costumes and like all of these bands seemed totally untouchable. But then you had these other guys who were like just regular looking people mm-hmm. and when you read about like what they were and where they were playing they weren't playing at like the spectrum they were playing at the palladium or and i was like what's the palladium or what's cbgb's or like what are these things mm-hmm. um and and it fascinated me in the same way oddly enough as like serial killers would fascinate somebody like you look at this thing and, and you're kind of scared of it um but you're still drawn to it in a right. way of like, what is, I'm interested in what this is going on over here, you know, and, and looking at pictures of Stiff Baders and the Dead Boys and being like, you know, he's so weird looking. <laughs> why is this other guy, why is his name Rat Scabies? And, you know, the Damned, like they call themselves the Damned. And, like this is a pistols. sickly bunch of people. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like you hear these weird stories of like Johnny Rotten throwing up, although he wasn't, you know, and yeah. like, you know, spitting on people. And, you know, you'd see like, these things over here and and my interest level started to you know i still had a that that genuine interest in music and like you know the drive of you know like cool stuff like cheap trick at the time i was really into them in 78 and 79 and but then it, my interest was still like you know the runaways or it was like really hot girls mm-hmm. and you know Joan Jet was really cool and I was like following them. Were you hearing them as well, or just I was kind hearing of them amazing. as well? Yeah, I was okay. seeing them, so then I had to find out about them. Yeah. So that's when it it became obvious that like I needed to really start looking. I was being fed stuff by MMR and WISP. As like, well, here's who you listen to. You know, we got Foghat, Slow Ride, over and over and over (laughs) and over. Um, But now I've got a magazine telling me, like, Cherry Bomb from The Runaways. And, like, you know, it was impossible. I wouldn't hear Sex Pistols or The Damned or anybody or, like, Slaughter and the Dogs. But, like, I'd read about the... Here was the weird thing was, like, you would read about these bigger bands, The Damned and The Sex Pistols and The Clash... 
But then, like, in parentheses, you'd see, like, on a flyer, not parentheses, in really small type in italics, in the corner of a flyer that you would see, like, Slaughter and the Dogs or Johnny Thunders or, like, like who are these guys, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, so, this is even, like, a lower substrata of this other thing. That precisely. So, like, that's where I, I became even more absorbed into wanting to know, like, what are these things? Because here are, are people who are kind of doing it on their own. Compared to, like, again, like, you know, I have to look in the Sunday bulletin at the concert schedule to see that, you know, Ted Nugent's coming. Over here, like, I don't even know where these bands play. Oh, my gosh, they're playing the Bijou Cafe because it's this big and our thing. And the Anti-Nowhere League is playing at the Bijou Cafe. And the UK subs are playing. What is the Bijou Cafe? Ah, it's fucking 21. Oh, my God, Steve Martin played there the night before, which, weirdly enough, I... um. I used to get all those newspaper clippings from the Sunday Bulletin and Inquirer and, like, cut them all out. I still have them. I have these fucking books. And and you can see, it's why I just rattled off the UK subs and the Anti-Nowhere League in, like, you know, 80 and 81 of seeing these bands playing really small clubs or, like, when U2 played at Ripley's, at where Tower Records used to be. I mean, there was just, like, all the... I'm absorbed and I'm drawn and all in and it's yeah. Sham 69 and now all these other things. So... Now, all this stuff's fallen by the wayside. Now, like, Kiss kind of doesn't matter anymore because mm -hmm. they're silly. And Judas Priest, they wear leather, but, like, a different kind of leather <laughs> that, like, than the Ramones are playing. Because mm -hmm. these guys, like, I could play that song. Like, I have picked up a guitar and played that song. And, and you could definitely play air guitar to And it. I could definitely <laughs> play air guitar to it. So, now I'm moving over here. And the other stuff, I still, you put it on, I'd be like, man, that's such a great song. And the news was fucking rocked at California Jam, but, you know, he wears a loincloth. <laughs> I don't get that. And yeah. um, that's not me. This is kind of me. Okay, that's interesting. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like, The Clash, they sing stuff. There's words that, like, mean stuff. And, like... The lyrics to White Riot or, you know, even like I'm So Bored with the USA. Like, they're saying stuff that isn't Wango Tango. Uh-huh, right. And then I'm like, Stiff Little Fingers, and they're singing about everything that's going on in Ireland at the time and the relationship that Ireland and the UK had with one another. Like, these are things that I would only see on the nightly news and couldn't wrap my head around. And you gotta realize in 1980, I'm only like 13 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worldview so, is probably fairly. Yeah, you know, but even but I'm doing this in 79 and 80, so I'm like 12 and 13. But like, I I'm looking at them, going like, wow, that's that's pretty interesting. Like, so you guys like there's race riots and there's all this kind of stuff going on. This stuff over here really didn't interest me. Mm -hmm. And, like, even to the degree that, like, the Sex Pistols, right, they had their God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK, and they were saying something. There were other people who seemed even more real because Sid Vicious was, like, such an absurd character. And this guy's name's Johnny Rotten. Like, I know it's not his real name. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure Joe Strummer's not his real name, but there's just, they sing about things that are, like, I'm, v I'm vastly interested to dig deeper. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, at this age, I'm aware of a whole other world outside of Frankfurt. I'm, a I'm aware of a whole other world outside of like some fantasy land 
that all of these these bands are just you know spewing out for no other reason than to like sell records and have hit records and I'm literally it was funny because again I'm, I'm kind of aware of, of watching it go on around me that like you know Kiss can't play this place anymore because nobody comes out to see him because they were all like 10 year olds who were coming to sound mm -hmm. but maybe it's just because it's they, they put a disco song out and it was so obvious to everybody that they're really they're just selling shit money. man yeah. yeah they're like really just selling me stuff they they interest they got me interested really in music and ACDC got me interested in music but like these guys got me interested in being in a band mm -hmm. like I could do what these guys are doing wow now I imagine a lot of other people in Frankfurt with you probably were very tightly constricted to the neighborhood you know very yeah. kind of insular people so they weren't really looking a lot beyond you know what was I could tell you inside. three people Kenny Kinnett, Chris Schmidt. To some degree, this kid, Mike Shalinski, who hung out with Kenny Kinnett. Um, but this kid, Kenny Kinnett, still friends with him. He he was a couple years older. I mean, he played football a couple years older. Wound up being like teenage coach kind of guy, help us out. But he he used to, code, he used to go to shows. Mm -hmm. But like early 80s stuff. Um and, and I found that interesting. And he started turning me on to bands in 80, in 79 and 80. So, uh, again, I'm reading it. I'm hearing about it from this. And, um, you know, 81, 82, things really started to change because then I started reading about the L.A. bands and hearing about D.C. bands. And when I saw... I saw Fear on Saturday Night Live. I was like, that was fucked up. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, what the hell was that, that all John about? Belushi in the pit? All of it. I was just like, <laughs> Donald Plaisance. I still remember it because it was the night before I had a football game. And, and me and Kenny Kinnett talked about it down there at Frankfurt Boys Club. Talked about it. Like, oh my God, did you see that? Oh, that was crazy. And like this dude had a dress on and they came out and, and, this, and they sang a really fucking awesome song. <laughs> Um, I don't care about you. Fuck you. And like leaving, he literally went like this and said, "Fuck you on television." Oh my god! It was like Donald Plaisance was like, eh? and it was these kids and they were jumping and all of this stuff. And I'm looking at that, and it came back to that whole like, it was so scary. But like, I was, I could not look. Mm -hmm. And I saw a picture of Black Flag at this point, and I had, I'd heard stuff. From like the decline, um, but did I, you see the decline or did you hear the record? I heard the record before I saw the movie. Right. First time I saw the movie, I saw it. It was a double feature with uh, Decline and Another State of Mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a great one. And I saw that at the TLA. Um, but I saw this picture of Black Flag. At this point, the, I know Henry was in the picture, but I looked at it and I just thought these guys are so fucking scary looking. But they were just like in a button-up shirt. Greg Ginn just was like greasy-looking hair dude. Henry was just like angry-looking. Uh, Chuck Tukowski was like, I don't know, the guy who lived down the street from me. Yeah. And, but they looked like I was... I knew the music that they put out. I knew the shit that happened at their shows. And, and I was scared of them. But at the same time, like, Damage was the greatest fucking album. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't not listen. So now... Even, like, the punk stuff of the Ramones. The Ramones were silly compared to these guys. Yeah. 
um, and it's still love the Ramones, but now it's this constant evolution of like, am I getting deeper? Well, around at the same time, it might have been a little earlier, George C. Scott was in a movie called Hardcore. Mm-hmm. The Paul Schrader movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it took me a little while to understand what, what it was about and what it meant, but the hardcore literally meant this, you know, the nature of what hardcore means. It's the, it's the core of it all. It's, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, like that was in reference to, to pornography. Pornography, but, yeah, right. But, 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 like, I still kept that... It was I was cognitive of that meaning in the pornography, but now I'm over here. It's like the porn of music. Yeah, Holy yeah. shit! Yeah, the most stripped down, raw, stripped and aggressive. Stripped down, raw, and aggressive, and now I've got not only the decline, but now I've got Boston, not LA, and and now I've got like fucking KDU, and I'm listening like, yeah. hey, it's Jeff Jenkins, WKDU, and. and now all of a sudden I'm listening to fucking, it's 82, and I'm listening to Minor Threat, and I'm listening to Scream, and I'm listening to, like, these brand new things. They are literally brand new happening, and, and I'm listening to it, and I'm like, where does this stuff, like, happen? Like, what is Love Hall, or Love Club at the time? What is this? Like, okay, 82, I am now 15, mm-hmm. but... I'm still a Frankfurt kid, and, you know, I do Frankfurt stuff, and we go to club, it was called uh, Club Space, it eventually turned into Club Pizzazz, but that was like, we'd go there, and then the kids from Kensington would come up drunk, and start fights, and we wouldn't drink, and then we'd fucking get in fight, and then I hated those guys, but we'd be there going like, play the Clash, but they'd be playing like Lionel Richie, or fucking <laughs> something, whatever. And people were just going there to dance at the... Yeah, yeah, girls would go down to dance. Kensington kids would come up to fight. Frankfurt guys would try to pick up the girls that the girls didn't want because they weren't drunk kids from Kensington. <laughs> Fucked up scene for a 14 and a 15 year old. Yes. Yeah. God, I miss being a teenager. Probably a lot of people holding up the wall. Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. us. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, well, going back just a little bit, yeah. where were you getting these records at the time? I mean, as you're finding these things, you know, Boston, LA, and then. Decline and Fall soundtrack and all that. Like, where where are they coming from? So now uh, I've discovered the record seller on Boston Avenue, up in the Northeast, um, and Third Street Jazz. So the record seller was awesome because I don't know that they were actually allowed. To, well, I know they weren't allowed to do it because there was a little sticker on there that said "Do not sell." But the dudes from MMR. But what couldn't they sell? The promo records. Oh, the pro- okay, yeah, yeah. So, like, the dudes from MMR would take their stuff up there. And I've only found out it was the MMR guys and, like, I guess the YSP guys, too, because the guys up at the store would be like, you know, hey, all right, see them now. I can't remember one guy's name. He used to do the uh, Gorilla Theater or something like that. His name's Mike. I don't know. I'll figure out his name shortly. But he used to take up, like, King Biscuit Flower Hour records and, like, with the Boomtown Rats and the specials. And I'd score all this stuff, and I'd score all this Runaway stuff, but every once in a while I'd be like, you know, the Decline soundtrack, or like the Anger Samoans, or like now all of a sudden this stuff is showing up, and Third Street Jazz, it was just there. But here it was like, it was easy. I could just walk up there to the record seller, or get on the 59 and, and take that up, um, and get off and just, you know, do whatever I was going to do, go up to 10 bucks, come back with, you know, the three records or something like that, because the stuff that I was buying, nobody else wanted, and they'd sell for really cheap. Yeah, do you happen to know when uh, Third Street opened? I never really thought about when they came into existence. Uh, I'm going to go with, and this is, I'm totally making this up, it had to be in the early 70s, if not way earlier. Oh, okay, that. yeah, I didn't yeah. realize that they were quite that, yeah. that old. I mean, it's just a jazz store, and then, you know, just... 
the basement was just all I was ever just it just went crickety steps downstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was the same thing for Go me as, as young man. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's where I was buying all this stuff. But before I was even buying it, I was just playing record on KDU, and I would just listen and and I would tape Jeff Jenkins' show or whoever else. The Jeff Jenkins was like the only guy that I ever remember really listening to um knowing that there was a show on but you know he would play records in their entirety so that like i mean it was just like somebody handed you a cd or something burning in it here's a disc i just bought and he'd play a record in its entirety and i'd record it all and then i had the new minor threat yeah or then i had the new screen or then you know whatever um and it just it went on until uh november of 83 i really like the circle jerks and uh, so November of 83 was my senior year in high school. Um, I was young for high school. I was just 16. And a friend of mine was like, pulled his flyer out. I was like, the Circle Jerks are playing down at Love Hall. We're going. Mm-hmm. So I was like... So this would be hardcore show number one. Hardcore show number one. Right. Now, but I missed Minor Threat by five months because they played in May. So now I'm up, but like there was that time of like, we should go to a show, we should go to a show. And Eddie Newell was his name, and Eddie Newell, he was just like circle jerk. So I was like, cool, man, let's do it. So we hopped on an L, went down, got off the L, got on Broad Street, went down that fucking right down to South Street, got the first exit or first stop, and then went upstairs. I was like, oh my God, it was fucking, it was just crazy. This is the first time you saw that many people like that, you know, yeah. clustered in one place. So, like, at Frankfurt High School, there was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, my friend Vince Dixon, uh, my friend Steve Kennedy, and my friend Eddie Knowles. So there was four of us. Mm-hmm. Four out of, like, I don't know, 2,000 kids who walk around the halls of Frankfurt, yeah. and yeah. we were freaks. Yeah, well, so what did you what did you and the other dudes look like, Jeff? So, we looked like, we're combat boots. It wasn't like, it was somewhat of a uniform. But, like, my dad was a fireman, so I had, like, one of his fireman shirts and, like, a homemade... Everything was homemade because I, I didn't have a class shirt, so I made a class shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, was it spray paint or a magic marker? Uh, weird. It was medicine that my friend Eddie Newell had to take, and it was what? purple. He <laughs> he just mean? drew on his shirt. He wrote The Clash. What, like, in a pill? And it was this liquid thing. I swear <laughs> to God, man. And it was purple, and it stained the shirt. I was like, man, what's it do to your insides? Like, that's what it does to the shirt. And we'd wash it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I had a leather jacket that my brother-in-law got at a bar, and he gave that. To, that was like, I think I got that towards the end of my senior year. Um but you know, just was there stuff painted on the jacket. Uh, there was great. stuff safety pinned to the jacket because I couldn't figure out how to paint it without it peeling off. Right, that was right. a big deal. I had I had no mentors. Yeah, right. you know. So um, when I showed up to this show, I, I t-shirt, jeans, pair of sneakers. You know, it wasn't any. And then I I got off the L and I looked at all of these people, and I was like, this is weird. Because there's so many people here who like this band, who are into this, and they all just, I mean, there were freaks, you know, I'm sure Brubakers, there was a bunch of Mohawk people there, um, but generally it was just people with short hair. Now mm-hmm. it's a lot of smoking cigarettes, the whole clove cigarette thing, uh, a lot of people were drunk, 
and then I went inside and it was fucking crazy inside it was like it was right off of a after school special because mm-hmm. there were people bumping into one another during the opening bands it was Reflex for Pain uh, this band from Bethlehem called American Dream they had this big muscle head singer I thought he was goon um, and it was just you know and then when the Circle Jerks came on it was just fucking chaos and I was like I just smiled the entire time. Like I so said, you weren't at all put off by it, like intimidated by it. I mean, I was intimidated by it to the yeah. point that I stood in the back mm-hmm. and I watched it all, which is kind of like even to this day, that's still my place at a show. Like I'm right on the edge of the pit. I'm never really. I've gotten in a bunch of times, you know, over the years, but like I usually am just a guy who's fucking listening to the band, like these fuck guys rock, man, kind of stuff. That mentality, um, and it just it was it was engaging. Because they were right there. Mm-hmm. And before they were right there, they were right there yeah. next to me. Yeah, at the bar drinking or walking around. Or walking whatever. around. Like, I'm like, that's <clears throat> the guy who sings for the Circle Jerks. And there's still three bands to go. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what it's all about. I'm like, these are guys I bought their record. I have Wild in the Streets and I have Group Sex. And like, you guys make records. You're no better than me, and you don't care. That's fucking awesome. You know? Wow. Okay. I'm down with this. This is it. This is, like, what it's all about. This is music and how music should be. By the people, for the people. And up to that point, there really was no other popular music that was at all like that. Or, I mean, not even that this is popular music, but any form of music. Any form of music that I knew of. So, as I got older, and, and I'll get to that, as I got older, you look back and you're like... Every every genre before it becomes popular, unless it was like manufactured in a boardroom somewhere, they all kind of came from a scene. Mm-hmm. Whether it was a tiny little club scene from their tiny little city or their big city, they still came from a scene. Motley Crue came from a scene, you know. They played small shows. Kiss, they played small shows, but they all had... A, a whole different agenda. They were shooting for this rock star, boom, like to the moon, yeah, glory yeah. dream. And they probably projected distance even from the start. You know, wanting, wanting to distance themselves from the audience to say that we are better. Eventually, maybe they will convince themselves that they are. But precisely, yeah. I mean, in hardcore, you're not going to really find that distancing because then you're immediately going to be rejected by the people that you right. Want and I've actually like. I've seen that. I saw that happen a couple of times. Uh, maybe I'll call out names later on, but it was like, dude, here's a fucking band. Lighten up. So, yeah, all this, all this goes down, and then it was just like, when's the next one? Mm-hmm. Like, that was fucking awesome. And we got on yell, and we went home, and weird, man. Alan Thick used to have this talk show on late at night, and Leaving Thick was night. on. Thick of the night, and Leaving was on. I just got done seeing the Circle Jerks, <laughs> and now I go home, and I'm like, that's the singer from Fear. Oh, wait, he's an actor, too. That's weird. Like, does he have that same agenda? Mm-hmm. Is he like these guys? Because Gene Simmons is trying to get in the movies, too. I don't know. Maybe these guys want to make a career of it. Who am I to judge? I don't fucking care. Because that was awesome. <laughs> that show tonight was fucking awesome. When's the next one? Two weeks. Who's going to do in the minute, man? What's the next one after that? New Year's Eve show. Love Hall's gone after that. What's the next one after that? There's this place out in West Philly. It's called the CE Center. UK subs are playing there. 
We're fucking going. Get on the L, head out to there. Then it's GBH is playing. Who's playing with them? And it's just it just went on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And the more I got involved in, the more I got to shows, I'm, I'm now looking around and observing. It was always like me and my friends. And every once in a while, somebody noticed that, you know, you weren't talking to anybody and you'd kind of talk to somebody. And it's just like high school. You know, you show up and lunch and, you know, it's just you and the two people you hang out with. And then somebody else was like, hey, you know, I have no friends either. Right. You want to talk? Mm-hmm. And then you hang out and then, you know, you get a feel for like, you know, okay, well, they're nice people, but they're really clicky and they do this and you'll never, they'll never even make eye contact with you. And I watched the scene from, from that perspective, mm-hmm. but... I still felt this kind of like we're just Northeast Philly kids. Like we're not from West Philly. We're not from Center City. Um, we're not from wherever these other people are from because I know they get on a train and come out here from fucking somewhere. From fucking Jersey. Out. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. where are all these people coming from? They're coming from somewhere. Yeah. Well, did you get did you get a different feel from people who are coming from different neighborhoods in Philly? I mean, you say you know West Philly or Center City or wherever. Yeah. Like these groups of kids. Did they project something different than what yeah. your group of kids did? And so yeah. what was the contrast? We like? were visitors, and this was theirs. Okay. And it, and it wasn't like in a snotty way. Mm-hmm. Again, if, if you could equate it to what it was, because at that age, I, w- I was still in my senior year of high school, um, and I'm still, I turned 17 in January of that year, January of 84. Um, like, you know, the people who I felt it was theirs were the people who... When GI played, they were the people who were up front. They were the people who were standing on the side of the stage talking to government issue. Mm-hmm. They were the people who were hanging out with Iron Cross because they they knew the band. They had been there long enough that they could talk to these people. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a fear of going up and talking to these people. I just didn't. These guys really seemed to have a relationship. So, if, you know, the only thing I projected was that you've been doing this longer than I have. And at some point, I'll be doing that too. Yeah, yeah. That's all yeah, it felt like. Exactly. So it, it wasn't like the jerk offs at your lunch who would sit over there and like throw stuff at people. They were just, and they weren't even cooler than us. They were just there longer. Yeah, yeah. You know, so all of 84, the, the end of the winter of 84, just going to shows and stuff and stuff. Fucking really cool. And then summertime comes rolling around. Graduated high school. Let me throw in a quick question before we sure. move on from there. Growing up in Italian, working class type family, how, how do your parents react to the fact that their son is you know into this weirdo shit? Or do they even see it that way? I mean, Totally do... see it that way. Okay. Two reasons. Right. One, in like February maybe, it was after I had turned 17, I went to the barber shop. In my neighborhood on Large Street, Large and uh, Bridge Street, there was a there was a barber shop there. Old Italian guy, and I walked in and I was like, "Here's what I want you to do." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, "What?" I was like, "I just want you to, like trim the top, but I want you to get the clippers and just go just around, not bald. Uh-huh. I just want you to cut this a lot shorter than you cut this. Right. Didn't look stupid." Didn't look, you know, like a bowl on top. It was just, it was messed up looking. Uh-huh. And he goes, no. <laughs> I was like, come on, man. Like, I'm not asking you. Just so he goes, I'll do this. But after I do this, you never come back in here. And my friend Vince was like. <laughs> he kicked out of the barbershop. So I was like, fine. I'll never come back in. So he does it. He earns his $5. Yes. 
get it done, walk to my house. I'm like, deep breath. All right, my dad's gonna look at it, he's not gonna like it. I know what he's gonna call me. Okay, so I go to open the door and the door's locked. I'm like, fuck. It's like, I ring the doorbell and then my mom comes down and just stares at me, shakes her head. <sighs> he's not gonna like this. Okay, go walk it up in the kitchen. My dad turns around, looks at me, and goes, you look like a smacked ass. <laughs> okay. I didn't have a picture taken again of me for the next two years. <laughs> I am not in any of my family photographs. History. Yes. So that that's how they reacted to it. The music, they didn't care because, you know, my brothers and even myself to a degree, you play like, you know, Ted Newton, Double Odd Gonzo. would be like, anybody who doesn't, wants to be mellow can turn around and get the fuck out of here. And we blast her, you know. Even my, my brother really liked uh, Patti Smith and... To a degree, like the Ramones, so it was like loud, fast music, but like, you know, shit that they would sing about would just be blasted through mm -hmm. the house. Yeah. And, you know, Disher Street was a really small street, and, you know, everybody heard what was going on in every single house. So, mm -hmm. you know, my, my mom totally dealt with it because that was just her personality. My dad, you know, um, classic, keep his mouth shut, don't talk to you for a couple of weeks if he gets pissed off at you kind of thing. And, you know, we just dealt with it. Mm -hmm. It was no big deal. Um, and so... This, this goes on, and going to shows was just like, not, I'm getting on the L and I'm going down to West Philly, because that would have been an issue. I'm just going out, I'm spending the night at so-and-so's house, and then we just go to a show, mm -hmm. you know? So all that went on, and then towards the end of that, when I graduated high school, um, in June of 84, the crew came out. Seven seconds, the crew came out. And... I, I make a point of this, and I get kind of quiet. It's very solemn. Dude, totally changed my life. So here here I am with, like, Scream and Minor Threat and the Circle Jerks and all these bands are really cool. And then I saw GBH, and they had big punk rock hair. They had big hair, dudes. Yeah, and, and they, they, they were kind of silly, and they were okay. Uh, same thing with the UK subs. They were, they were okay. They were very punk. Um, and I really didn't dig that punk looker thing. But then the crew came out, and I just fucking read the lyrics to it, and I was just like, oh my god, man. Yeah, I mean, if there's like a record that's going to change your life, it's a really goddamn good one. Yeah! And, it, and it, everything's positive that is shooting into your head. Right, so I'm growing up in Frankfurt. I hung out in Somerdale. All of my friends drank. All of my friends' siblings were fucking alcoholics at like 15, no exaggeration, mm -hmm. 15 and 16. Every Friday night was a fight. That's just what the night meant. You go behind JFK Hospital and there's going to be a fight and whatever. And I just didn't want to live that way anymore. Were you a, a part of that at all? I was a part of that. because So you were, you were drinking and fighting to some degree? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. But it wasn't like... I, I wasn't like drinking... I was, it was absurd as this is. It was like peer pressure drinking. So I drink like a can of beer, a can of Sch, uh, Schmidt's 16 ounce fucking warm. Hated it. And then just be like, God, I fucking hate this. There's nothing to do. Mm -hmm. I want to go to a show. I don't want to do this. Well, I before Seven Seconds of Crew came out, my senior year, I had to do this five-minute speech for an English class. And I, and I wrote this whole thing out on, on hardcore. And that was with my five-minute speech. I came in and played Toxic Reasons. I played Minor Threat, um, Straight Edge. And um, 
there was like two other records. I played a Clash one, and then there was something that was totally stupid. I still have the, the speech at home. And, and I basically said, like, you know, I called everybody out. You think I'm this way? You think punk rock is this? This is what it is. And I fucking hand-wrote the lyrics to everything. That's and I made a point about Straight Edge, and I was like, this right here, that's all of you. Mm-hmm. I am a, You're the antithesis of fucking me. I hate all of you. <laughs> Drinking, smoking, fucking, all of that. I just like that girl. I don't want to fuck her. I just want to hang out with her. But she doesn't want to hang out with me because I'm not a fucking drunk like you. That's yeah. where I was. I was like, oh my God, I fucking hate you all for a fucking good reason. <laughs> the kids must have loved you. They were just like, my teacher, oh my gosh, she wrote me the nicest note. You're going to be someone of great importance. Mm-hmm. That was what she wrote in my high school yearbook, Miss Paul. I was like, I am on the right fucking track, man. Mm-hmm. So, um, Seven Seconds to Crew comes out. Um, just blown away. Man, I sat down in my bedroom and wrote. Like, this... Memory serves me wrong, I'm sure, but it was like a five-page front and back letter to, to seven seconds. Mm-hmm. Folded that and just how amazing what they say and, and how they... Uh, articulated and their music and what it makes me feel and I folded that thing up and stuck it in an envelope and that was the end of that I came home in late July that year and this is a summer of like what am I going to do with the rest of my life I don't know what I'm going to do my parents are just like I went, I went to a trade school uh, Philadelphia school printing and advertising learn how to advertise and learn how to run a printing press and do graphic arts and graphic design and layout and stuff. That's what I wound up doing. But, like, I still didn't know what my life was going to be about. So, like, there was a couple of shows that summer. JFA was one of them. And uh, Lenny was, uh, Lenny Bandock was on KDU one night. And he was like, you know, we really need people to help out. Like, we have no place to put on shows. Um, If you want to make flyers, you can make flyers. I was like, oh, my God, I can totally fucking make flyers. Mm -hmm. Because I had four years of graphic arts. In yeah. Frankfurt. So I called him up on the phone, like at KDU, and I was like, dude, I'll totally make you flyers. So it was JFA, it was JFA the Dead Milkman. I think it was like the Dead Milkman's first show. Um, Sun City Girls might have been there, but it was, at a, it was at a frat house out in West Philly. Nonetheless, made flyers, took him down there. I was like, dude, what else can I do? I want to be part of this. Mm-hmm. That was all I had for us at that moment. So um, I wrote this letter, seven seconds. I came home sometime in July. My mom goes, you got mail. There's a fucking letter that's like this thick. Nice. And it's from Reno, Nevada. Uh, I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. It's handwritten. By Kevin Seconds. Oh my God. I open it up and it's like fucking stickers just fly out. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and I and it's, it's the most amazing thing because it's, from Kevin Seconds, and he's like, Mark, wow. Like, I still have that letter, but it's still at my fucking parents' house. Because they still have a shitload of my records. Um, and, and he just goes on about how meaningful my letter meant to him. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> You're blowing me away because, like, ha, ha, ha. And I had gone on this whole thing, like, please come play in Philadelphia. I want to see you play. He was like, here's my telephone number. If you could call me sometime to give me a contact, I'm like, oh my God, I have Kevin Seconds fucking telephone number. So now all my friends are like, 
writing letters to their bands. Mm-hmm. You know, Marginal Man, my friend Vince got in his correspondence with the dude from Marginal Man, and he wrote um, Brian from fucking Sadistic Exploits. He's writing him. So now we're on this like fucking letter writing thing. Like, oh my God, you can just write a letter and they write you back. Brian lives here in Philadelphia, you know, so he <laughs> yeah. probably could have fucking got on a yell and rode down to his house. Yeah. But so we got on this thing, but I'm, I'm like, oh my God, I got fucking seven seconds. Holy shit. So like, He's like, hey man, what's going on? It's like just, holy shit, I'm talking on a fucking telephone in 1984 to this dude whose band is the most awesome band in the fucking world. Mm -hmm. And and like my parents are just like, oh my God, you shut up talking about this band? Because now I'm just like... (laughs) So I got him contact information for Fat Howard, um, who at the time, I think Lenny gave me the number for him. Nonetheless, I just fucking put them in contact and that was it. Never, never heard hide nor hair of it. And then um, he, Kevin, maybe he gave me a call. He got in touch with me and let me know they were playing in Philly in October. And I was like, holy fucking shit. Where? A place called Abe Steakhouse. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got him there. We had to figure out where it was, but me and my friends went there. And, um, so you weren't aware of any of the other shows that were happening at that there, place at the time, or was that the beginning of the of Abe's? Yeah, that was the first show. Okay, that was the very first show there. And um, up until then, that summer was a kind of a dry summer. Uh, there was because it was really hard to do shows. It was really hard to find a place. The CE Center was hit or miss. Um, the there were a couple of frat houses out on UPenn's campus that let you do shows um, and they were kind of hit or miss so there was only a couple of shows that summer and then in before that there was a, a show on Church Street like second church or second Cuthbert there was really small it was like a tr- fucking little alleyway but Government Issue was playing down there uh, Joyride just came out um, Fang played there the week before Fat Howard did that show he did both of those shows um and the GI show, we didn't go see Fang because we found out about it too late. And there was also, yeah, Black Flag played the Long March. So there were still Long March shows. That's right, because I saw a fucking negative approach mm-hmm. there um, at the Long March. And that was like a weeknight show. I saw the freeze at Long March. So that was, that was still that, that was a summer. I was still in school. Those were school nights. So, but it was during the summer that things started getting hard for shows. So I think I really only saw JFA and maybe another show that summer. Um, and then the first show that winter was GI, the winter, the fall, September. GI, GI came on, started their first song, I think it was Blending In, and cops came in, fucking shut the show down. And then a couple weeks later, it was seven seconds, and it was, I, I fucking, oh my god. I'm like standing there, and Kevin Zeggins is standing there, and it was just like, and I guess at this point, you're the guy who's up in the front talking to him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, dude, you have the relationship. It, it comes it, right around. Yeah. So I got all these pictures on my Facebook of like, some dude took a series of pictures. It's just like, I went nuts, man. I was like, Kevin Seconds put the mic front out. I was like, every fucking word, every fucking seven seconds on, I knew. I, I probably made a fool of myself, but holy shit, it was the greatest night of my life. Mm-hmm. But that was a big moment because that was the night where I was like, I'm going out to West Philly tonight. Why? There's band playing. That band Seven Seconds playing out there. Where in West Philly? Uh, it's like 40th Market. You're not going to 40th Market. 
Uh, yes, I am. I guess you should explain how how that area was perceived, especially at the time. Oh, it was but, yeah. It was it was not the greatest neighborhoods. I mean, even you know, Penn was sort of right there, but you still had you know five blocks to get to, probably four blocks to get from there to there, mm-hmm. and um. Yeah, I mean, it was dilapidated buildings. It was just, it was not a cool place to be. Got to tell you, year before, I had to have my dad come pick me and my friend up at the skating rink out there, UPenn Skating Rink, because I saw the clash mm-hmm. and um, didn't have money to get this L to get home. So my dad had to drive all the way out to pick us up and was not pleased about that. I'm sure he was not. No. Um, yeah, so now, now life... Now I'm that guy. I'm the guy who's fucking talking to the singer and we're hanging out front. It was just, you know, stupid at first. I was like, oh my God, hi, I'm Mark. Bro bump and all this stuff. And um, and then they just fucking blew my mind. And then at that point, it was just like, show started happening with a pretty good consistency. That year, Iron Cross played and Government Issue played and it was Marginal Man played. And, you know, now it's just like my record collection is growing and... Now I'm just really interested in stuff in bands, and I'm talking to people at shows, and I'm making friends at shows, and and now I'm just being me. Now I'm just Mark Pingator there, and it's like you know I walk up and people are like, hey Mark, what's going on? And now I'm just this, and like I'm talking to the guy who's putting on the shows, and it's Chuck, and you know like, yeah, dude, man, you ever need me to help out? I can make a fucking flyer, dude. You want to make flyers? Totally, I can make you flyers. I, I go to a printing school, man. I can not only design them, I can fucking print them for you. For free. Yeah, which is always really crucial because who wants to spend the money? You know a money printer. Yeah. You're in. Yeah. And if you're that if, printer. If you are the printer. You should definitely You're totally in. in. Yeah. So, uh, and even then, like, I wasn't, like, doing it so I can get in shows free. I was just doing it. You know, I was doing my part. I wanted to be part of, like, this. So, um, then I started making friends. Then I started hanging out with Chuck and at his place in West Philly. And I'm meeting all these people and we're crashing after shows out there and... He's bringing in these bands that, like, you know, you never heard of. Decry came in and played, and um, the Crucifix came in and played that time. So, to, and, and the, the beautiful thing about Philly is because, like, Philly always embraced every fucking type of, of weird music that came around. Mm-hmm. You know, and even if you look at the types of bands who were playing at shows that you could have, you know, Morphine's Love Muffin and FOD on the same bill, they were three totally different bands, mm-hmm. man. And th- nobody left when the Morphines came on, and the people who were watching the Morphines were also watching FOD and Love Muffin. It was just cool. That's why Philly was fucking cool, because it was just music. Yeah, it's something that comes up in some of the interviews, is that Philly never really produced a Philly sound. Right. But yet produced all these really eclectic bands that, yeah. at least within the city, were supported, which I think is really unique. That there can there can be a thriving scene, but not a defined sound of people kind of emulating that, each other. That's absolutely it. Like we weren't emulating each other. It was like, oh my god, and they're like that. So let's all be like that. Which no slam on on you know the New York scene is successful is worldwide successful as it is. But the, you say you're from New York, you were guaranteed what you're going to sound like, mm-hmm. or what your stage presence was going to be, or you know all of it. It was just all like a machine of just pumping out music, and and that's just how it was. And we were friends with all of those guys too. Um, so at this point, I am like, I'm involved in the Philly scene. Um, I I somehow or another started doing the scene reports for. Maxim Rock and Roll, there was this guy 
used to have a, kind of a paint, uh, a Dutch boy haircut. I'll remember his name shortly. He used to do them. He used to sell Maximum Rock and Rolls at shows. And I got to talking to him, and he was like, you can do the report. And I was like, I would love to do the report. Um, so then I got in touch with uh, Tim Yohannan and just start fucking writing letters back and forth. So for my 19th birthday, um, my parents asked what I wanted for my birthday, and I said, I want a plane ticket. Why? Uh, I, want, I want to go to Reno. What? I want to go to Reno. Mm-hmm. So for my 19th birthday, I was in Reno, Nevada, staying with Seven Seconds and Youth of Today. Jeez, and the reason it was Youth of Today fantastic. is because they had just put out Can't Close My Eyes. They li- And when I say just put it out, they literally, we were in Kevin Seconds' living room putting them into the sleeves. And they just did like a five-show tour in California. Mm-hmm. So it was me and Ray and Priscelli and uh, this guy Jordan who helped start Revelation. Um, and Kevin and like, you know, Bellevue and the rest of the guys were in seven seconds. And we're all just hanging out in the fucking living room and doing this shit. And for my 19th birthday, birthday Kevin Seconds gave me... Uh, uh, a crass flexi mm-hmm. and misfits horror business mm-hmm. seven inch out of his own collection like fucking stapled the side wow. of his head and Kev, that's Kevin's like it was like happy birthday <laughs> oh my god a colored vinyl no less this thing's probably worth a thousand fucking dollars now ten thousand because it was Kevin's seconds to begin if with. you die you gotta make sure it comes with the story like not only is it this record but guess who fucking <laughs> gave it to me right so, yeah, that's what I did for my 19th birthday, and uh, it, was, it was a pretty cool time, because me and Ray, so I became friends with Ray back then, and, like, me and Ray and my friend Bessie, we, like, drove all over um, Nevada and just, like, you know, went hiking in the mountains and climbing in fucking caves and doing all this really awesome stuff. And how was Ray? Like, what kind of a guy was he? Ray's just, like, me, you, and great, totally normal guy, um, really into music, really into records, um, Probably one of the funniest guys I ever met. Mm-hmm. We we pissed our pants laughing um, that, that entire five, six days we were hanging out. And it, and it was a friendship that continued from that moment, because that was the very first time I met him. Um, it continued from then until, you know, I moved to North Carolina to 89, when, you know, because we played a bunch of shows with Youth of Today, and, and those were shows that, like, Ray would fucking call me up and be like, why don't you guys play CBs with us? Yeah, yeah. You know? Um so th- this happens, and then we went to visit the Maxim Rock and Roll house. So this is this is. Some... Oh, so you drove all the way down to San Francisco from yeah. from Reno. From Reno, we went from Reno to Sacramento, Sacramento and San Francisco. Um, went to Maxim Rock and Roll house, hung out there, uh, met Pusshead. Um, no, I met Pusshead next time around. First time was the Maxim Rock and Roll house. Walked in, fucking was just like, oh my god, look at all these records. There's fucking records everywhere. <laughs> Like, it's, it's an unbelievable, it's just, wow. And they're from all over the world. And Timmy had to be just like, yeah, you know, the record player's right over there. You just, I ask you, just put them back in the sleeve, put them back where you found them. Mm-hmm. Meticulously, alphabetical order, you know, something like, cool. That's how I keep my record collection, we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So, um, so how was that Tim to deal with? What was, I mean, Tim was, you know, considerably older than Yeah, man, I looked everybody. at Tim at like, so I just turned 19. For all I knew, Tim was like 72. He was just this mm. old guy, but he was super fucking cool. Oh my god! First time walk in, it's me, Tim Yohannan, Jello by offer. and like Jello is like Tim. Tim's like, hey Jello, this is uh, Mark Pingatory from Philly. He was like Philadelphia, Lee Paris, huh? You know that Lee Paris is a real fucking so and so, and he was just going on. And I'm like, 
uh, like Lee Paris is that guy who used to be on, I think he was on XPN, I guess he's a DJ, okay, <laughs> he's got a beef with you, you got a beef with him, okay, I don't know, man, I'm Mark Pantor, nice to meet you, whatever, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we, and Tim was just like super cool guy, and excited that like I was excited, so to, to a certain degree, many of the Maxim Rock and Roll people, Tim, Martin Sprouse, um, the handful of other people that like, you know, I would correspond with, they were mentors in the sense of like, just carrying the torch of like, this is what we do. You know, it was the first time I saw fucking Martin Sprouse sitting there laying out something on a Mac. Yeah. You know, and I was just like, wow, so how does this layout pro? Because I didn't even fucking work on computers when I was going to school. We were still doing letter set type and all this fucking stuff. So, you know, spent the night. You should listen to the Sprouse interview. I should just interject for a second because he's so good. It's, uh, it's, he's such a nice guy and he's, he's really funny fucking, and clever. He's such a great guy. Wow. Okay. Now I will, Now that we're doing ours, now I'm going to listen to all of them. <laughs> okay. So, um, Yeah. Hang out there, get on a plane, fly back. Again, life totally changed. Now it's it's a big world. Yeah, I was gonna say that maximum rock and roll is very internationalist, you know, very international, hardcore oriented, and very political. Yeah. So that's gotta send all kinds of shit, you know, flying your way. Absolutely, because what I said, the Clash and Stiff Little Fingers did for me, and now. Uh, getting involved in the scene and like writing a scene report and having people from you know all over the world I was getting like weird postcards from fucking the USSR mm-hmm. like I don't know how these people were sneaking shit out but stuff was getting out uh, Poland a um, couple of from Japan Germany and it was just people just wanted to and they were like regular letters like hi how was your scene period uh-huh. So, I don't know. Read the report. Uh-huh. Um, so th- these guys, I don't know that they saw it as a changing of the guard, but they realized that it was ever evolving mm-hmm. because there was always somebody different writing the scene report for whatever city in whatever state. You would never get a consistent one, even from like New York, you know, because New York, there was always some sort of schism of like, you know, Michael Board was writing shit and people were pooping on him because he was a weirdo and whatever. And he was probably pooping on some people, too. (laughs) I think that's why I used the word poop. Um, But there, there was just, I just took these people for who they were. Unless they were like an outward, like really weird pervert, they just... The world is a fucking odd place, man. And I pretty much come to terms with that. Yeah. And, you know, going to San Francisco at a young age, and and it wasn't like I was exposed to stuff. I'll never forget. It was the first time I was ever on a plane when I flew into Reno. I'll never forget. When I got off, I felt like the whole world was askew. Like I was literally standing on the side of the world. It was the weirdest feeling. And then I just started talking to these people that I'd only spoken to on a telephone. But again, it's that... Now I'm, I'm not only, like, coming in from, you know, the left-hand side. Now I just felt like I, I was part of all of it. And it was beyond Philadelphia. Now I'm communicating with people everywhere. And it was it was meaningful. So when I got back, now, during this time, from that time in summer 84, all the way up until, like, 89, to like, there was... I know it's weird for, like, a fucking 
17-year-old, 16-year-old to be like, so I didn't drink, but, like, I just shit on all that stuff. Like, there was no use for it. It was just, I didn't shit on, I didn't, like, shit on people who were, like, you know, I drink and smoke. I was just like, I just don't. Mm-hmm. And it, I was much more creative. I was much more clear. I was much more driven. I was much more engaged in everything. And, and I saw everything for as amazing as it was. So, um, I'm, I'm interacting and... Now I want to do stuff, and I want to put out a zine. So, like, when I came back, I had talked to Ray about it, and I was like, I want to, you know, you guys are fucking great. I want to do an interview with you um, to put in my fanzine. Plus fanzine is what it was called. And, um, but also at the same time, I wanted to do, so this was Ray's POV. was, like, positive and straight edge. I was like, we got this thing in Philly, these dudes... Who were like these punk rock guys, and they call themselves Hate Edge, mm-hmm. and their Hate Edge thing, I kind of don't get. They're not like preaching hate to hate others. They were just kind of calling stuff out for what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is a nasty, mean, and angry place. It's not as positive as you want it to be. Were they centered around any, any bands in particular? Circle of Shit was, okay. and it was specifically Brubaker. It was his thing. COS was Hate Edge. They had, I believe, they even have a song called Hate Edge. But that was, you know, you'd see their jacket and it was COS and it'd say Hate Edge underneath of it. So I, I did this contrasting um, series of interviews, set of interviews, that it was like the Youth of Today and Circle of Shit one. And, you know, I went into this interview with Brew thinking he was going to be this, I don't know. He, that he wasn't going to be intellectual, he wasn't going to be articulate. It's it was, that it was going to be a joke. Yeah, like a Gigi Allen type or something. Yeah, you man. Know, so yeah. yeah, it's exactly it. And um, he invited me to his house, and I went into his house, and I was like, "Dude, you got a fucking amazing record collection." And we talked about punk, and it was just it was a whole conversation about punk, and then we got onto it. And now, were you tape recording the interview, or did you? Tra- I was tape recording the interview. Right. So you know, I went home and transcribed it later, and I still have. Uh, guarantee they're still around somewhere. But what it, what it all came down to was was basically I just summarized it was his view of his hate edge thing. And at the time, some chick had walked into um, some mall out in the suburbs here and opened fire, mm-hmm. killed a couple of people. Some girl did, um, and that was his point. Was like that's what hate edge is. Like that's the fucking world we live in. People hate. People are angry. People are hurt. People are broken. Was this something that he was embracing, or was this sort of, you know... He was just saying, like, you can't fucking hide from... You can talk about your positive stuff, and that's great, and you can live that way. That's great. We're still saying this fucking exists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are drunks and alcoholics, and they're nasty, and they're mentally disturbed, and they're angry, and they're... You know, the disaffected youth. This is... That is the entire city of Philadelphia, (laughs) Except for the main line. Pretty much. <laughs> and and I was like, dude, I can't even argue with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that is sadly this true. Is, it's, it's so true. And and I'm going to publish everything that you just said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I showed him the interview and, and he was perfectly fine. Because I didn't paint him to be anything. Which was like, I'd probably something. That he, he was a little, um, he was a little standoffish about doing it because he... The uh, Philadelphia Magazine did this interview with him. I don't know if you'd ever heard about it, but he was put on the cover, and they made him out to be some stupid fucking punk rock. No, I never saw that before. In fact, I don't think anyone's mentioned it. 
This would have been what, 80? <laughs> wow, this was 84. Yeah. Brew made the front cover. Oh, I'd like to see that. Oh my god. Brew made the front <laughs> cover of Philadelphia Magazine, and it was a big deal because he, he was just like some punk rock kid. And they were like, let's do an interview. And he went in thinking it was going to be, you know, like, no big deal. He got got. And they gutted him, man. Mm-hmm. They made him out to be a fucking dork. Not even, like, a bad purchase. Like, I found the Love Hall fucking stapled with a bunch of covers. I mean, yeah, it was just, yeah. it was stupid. So when, now I'm like, I think that's who Brubaker is. Then I was like, dude, you're totally fucking cool. Like, you're a really cool guy. And Brew and I became friends. Mm-hmm. And I'm friends with Ray from Youth of Today. And I'm friends. So now I'm just like, this is the scene. Like, worldwide, we are all part of this. You straight edge guys got to realize that, like, these guys are just as important to all of... It's it's the balance of life, man. Mm-hmm. It's the yin to the yang. We're all part of this, man. And I love it all. So... I want to do more. What can I do? I want to put out music because, like, Philly's got these really cool bands out here. There's Electric Love Muffin. There's fucking Ruin. There's Scram. There's FOD. I want to put out a record. So I put out a 7-inch. Put out That Was Then, This Is Now. Mm-hmm. Did it from my parents' basement. At the time, Chuck started doing shows. What was the, the label name? Plus. Okay. Plus same, Records. Same as the zine. Yeah, same as the zine. Um... Chuck was doing shows at the kennel at this point. So, um, we just fucking put a record out. And it was a lot easier than I imagined. So that was really cool. It was just like, I sat in, uh, Tom Vosco, the singer for Rowan, sat in his kitchen one day and he gave me a tape and I had By the By and, you know, here's the master tape for that. And, uh, I was friends with the guys from Scram, and they gave me the tape, and, you know, everybody was just like, yeah, man, we'll totally do it. And then I pressed them and sold them, and, you know, I sold a couple thousand. I think I sold about 1,500 of them. That's, that's good. I have about 50 or 60 that I found in my parents' house a couple years ago, so they're still sitting there, mm-hmm. still in a fucking box. Um, and then, then I was just like, cool, now, who, and then people are like, will you put my record in? Because it was like, I didn't take any money, it was just... Record places were like, well, it's going to be this much money. We'll front you. I had this guy, Kane Boychuk was his name, and he would just like, basically you did it on credit, and then, you know, when the money came in, and you just started fucking banging them. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's what I did. I put his, I put the, that was in, this is now, and I put Legitimate Reasons 7-inch out. I put Homo Picnic's album out, and I put the Serial Killer's album out. So all of that is going on. And then in the summer of 1985... Yeah, summer of 1986. 85 or 86, that'll hit me. When was Live Aid? I think, oh, Jesus. Uh, 85. Yeah, it, was, it was one of those. I'm going, Live Aid was the summer of 85. All right. Live Aid was the summer of 85 because the same day that Live Aid happened, I did my first show. Chuck was like, you want to do a show? Like, it totally helped me because there's like these bands that just like bother me all the time. Like, I don't want to do mm-hmm. a show with them. So my first show was with False Prophets, and I did it at Abe's. And he taught me everything. He taught me how to, you know, get in touch with somebody with a PA and what overhead was and, you know, how you accounted for all of this and that and talking to people and needing a stage and just all of it. So that was the first show I ever did. How were the False Prophets? Because I love the first record. I like the second record, too. But... They, they were cool, and it was the first yeah, record. They gave me a copy. Dude with fingernails, total weirdo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always got the weirdness. 
Um, I, I was always drawn to them, I guess. They, super nice guys. Um, and they were great. It was a great show. 50 people showed up, maybe. Um, because, you know, False Prophets kind of had their... They weren't like... They were from New York, but they weren't like what people were used to from New York. Yeah, they were sort of wanted more of an art, arty and, sort of... Yeah, so very, they were... Very political. Yeah. They were, they were more of, you know, the people who showed up there, I guarantee you, were like the people who hung out at Morphine shows. Or, mm-hmm. you know, people people were more traditionalist. Because Philly was also um, somewhat fragmented in, like, if you put a band on that was like False Prophets, people wouldn't show up. But if you put, two weeks later, uh, had SNFU come in, there'd be 500 people trying to stuff themselves into Abe's. You know, it was mm-hmm. just people... So at that point, more, there were, people were more focused on the hardcore... Yeah, rather than the more from from know, out of town bands. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, that that was my first show. As that went on, um, I started doing bigger shows. So Chuck would kind of like help me out, or I would help him out. I mean, I was always at a show with him helping set up for it. But then, like, you know, I think he kind of wanted to get away from it a little bit. But like, you know, I did a Detroitson show out at the Crypt once, and then Dean Stankowitz, who lived at where the Crypt was. Where was the Crypt? Crypt was at, in West Philly, it was a house. Um, man, I'm going, I don't, couldn't even tell you now the address, but it was 40-something in Walnut, maybe. It was, okay. it was a house, a really big house. Um, but like... I did the first Decroitson show there. Me and my friend Jeff Rosen did the first Decroitson show there. But like Cheetah Crow motherfuckers played there. Chuck set that up. UPS played there. First Pagan Baby show was at the Crypt um, with UPS, the useless pieces of shit from Arizona. Um, I don't think I've ever heard that before. Uh... <laughs> oh my God. You Google, do the YouTube and look up useless pieces of shit. They play, okay, first time I ever saw UPS... Bald-headed guy, you're thinking he's like a skinhead, but he's just like a a crazy person. Uh And they were like, we played New York the night before, you know, we played New York last night, and they do this thing called moshing. And he started imitating what the moshing was, because nobody used the term moshing, people just slammed or thrashed, you Mm -hmm. know, moshing, what the fuck is that? And he starts doing his thing, and, and, and me and my friends are like, he looks like a fucking mummer. The way he was doing this thing, and, and I'm like, oh my god, we got to start being mummers at shows. It's really funny. Mummercore. Yeah, it's totally Philly hardcore mummer prancing. So, um, yeah, then, then I, I helped Chuck out with a few shows, and then I started doing my own shows. Um, you know, while he was, we, we just kind of split things up. So, uh, I did. I did a really, some of the bigger shows that I did, I did a Youth Brigade show uh, at Pi Lamb, which was a frat house. It was, for all I know, it was the one and only time Youth Brigade ever played here. So I had a connection with BYO Records, which was through Seven Seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then BYO called me up and we were like, hey, you know, um, Seven Seconds, going to be on tour, but we also have this band, SNFU, and uh, Upright Citizens from Germany. Can you help us get a show with them? So I helped... Chuck and I kind of did this co-show together at the CE Center. It was the Seven Seconds Walk Together, Rock Together tour. Um, they played at the CE Center. And then also, like, that summer, um, SNFU played at at uh, Abe's. That was the classic 
some fucking chick came out and tried to kill somebody with a hammer. I know Gary Heidnick was at that show. <laughs> Upright Citizens was there. But that was also a summer of, like, fucking getting in a car and driving around. We went up to see, like, the Bad Brains and cro play at the Rock Hotel, which is a fucking amazing time. And Seven Seconds Youth Brigade. And it was this big BYO show at the Rock Hotel up in New York, too. But So, so Upright Citizens played uh, Philly then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I love that that record, the Open Eyes. The Open Eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fantastic record, which I always think gets really overlooked. I don't even think people know it exists. And and was like, I thought they were amazing. Like, as cool as I always thought SNFU was, your puts out... I love so much music that comes from overseas. Mm -hmm. Okay, stuff that comes out of Norway and Finland and Sweden is just mind-blowing. Germany had Inferno was a really great band. Um, I probably said this. That record itself, I just thought was such a fucking amazing record. Yeah, it's also a really positive uh, record. Yeah. And very political, you know, dealing with the Holocaust and all this other stuff. Yeah, so that, that again, that stuff it has an influence on like Mark Pingator and, and who I'm becoming to be and you know, it's this evolution from guy from like just wanting to talk to people at shows to like, man, I'll do your flyers to I want to do a fanzine to I want to put records out because anybody can do it to I can do shows. Sure, man. Let me fucking set up some shows. Um, you know, and then I'm getting telephone calls from all these bands. I have this fucking Rolodex that's so funny that I've got like, you know, Joey Shithead's telephone number in it from DOA. Then this is at the, the weird time, that evolution of like New York metal finding its way into the hardcore scene. So I've got like the dude from Nuclear Assault called me to ask yeah, Dan, if I can get Dan him a show. Maybe. Yeah. That's all I know is I still have the card that says Nuclear Assault. I'm like, Hence the mosh. Yes. Coming into <laughs> so um, I never booked those bands, but. Um, you know, as as things are going on, then uh, the it was really it was really hard to find places to do shows. That was always a big problem. That's why I like the Youth Brigade show was it was Youth Brigade and Rest in Pieces and Scram out at a frat house, and it was an amazing night. But when I, you did Youth Brigade, had you seen the movie The Another State of Mind? Oh yeah, yeah, a couple years prior to that, and like that that was really cool to be talking to those guys on the phone because like. Again, now it's just like I'm just picking up the phone, talking to bands that I fucking love, and I'm just, it's, but other people love them too. Mm -hmm. So I'm just right now feeling like the conduit. I'm nothing more than like, who you want to see? Dude, I can totally get their number. Let's mm -hmm. get them down here. And Youth Brigade only did a couple of shows. It was like a Boston, New York, and Philly. I don't even think they played DC that year. They didn't have a record or anything that was coming out. They just wanted to play some shows. So, you know, they came in, they played. Um, it was a great time, and then I'm getting to this point of like I was I was living in Wildwood during the summers, but I'm still like on the phone communicating with bands and setting up shows. Why are you living in Wildwood? It's something to do. You know, go down there, work for the summer on the boardwalk, make some money, just do whatever because nothing really happened in in the city. It was it was more fun to have a job on the boardwalk than there was walking around, getting on a bus, driving down a fucking. Aramingo Avenue working at some fucking place. Yeah. <laughs> I worked at some place on Aramingo before. So, um, yeah, I'm doing, doing all this stuff. And now, now we're into, like, summer of 86. And um, Jello had all the problems with Frank and Christ and the Geiger. And yeah, yeah. So I was, like, I two times, I think, one, no, one more time because I went after that. 
Uh, just wanted to go out, hang out in San Francisco. So I flew out to San Francisco, stayed at the Maxim Rock and Roll House for a few days. Um, this is when you meet Pusshead? This is, no, I met Pusshead the following time because okay. that was a Pagan Babies thing. Okay. Um, so just, you know, going and doing this and that and, um, and Jello having all his problems. So I was like, you know what, man, I'm going to do my part. He had to no more censorship defense fund because he was in deep shit. So I held a benefit. Seven Seconds was on tour. New Wind just came out. And I got in touch with him. And I was like, Kevin, I want to do a show. And um, it's, it's going to be a benefit. Like, I know you guys can really bring in people. But it's it's for a thing. And I'm Mark. You know, I'm not going to fucking take your money and do something. Yeah, normally the weird. worst thing a band can ever hear yeah. is like, oh, we have to now right. make no money from Make no money place. from this. So what I wound up doing, I, I wound up paying for their hotel. I went up taking care of them. They just didn't get money for the show. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they had merchandise to sell. They had merchandise to sell, yeah. right. So, But, dude, there was a fucking shitload of people I that bet. packed in a kennel club. It's never in all of my time had I been to a hardcore show where there was a fucking line before the doors even opened. It was amazing. So I got on the L with a few thousand dollars stuffed down my pants that I was going to fucking send to Jello by offer. To the No More Censorship Defense Fund. And he had somebody to like ran the defense fund for him or whatever. But man, I went down to the went down to the post office on Frankfurt Avenue. Get a money order. We fuck get a money order, made out to the No More Censorship Defense Fund, and I fucking sent it and never heard back from him. Mm. Not a thank you, nothing. That's really lame. So you should like, at least gotten a fucking t shirt. Fucking something, man. <laughs> yeah. So um yeah, I was just like, whatever, fuck you guys. I did my part. Um, but we are now in the summer of 86, and I am on the L coming home from a show. Maybe it was, I couldn't even tell you who it was now, but it was me and Michael McManus and Eric Squadroni and Dan McGinnis and my girlfriend at the time. And we're on the L, we're going home, and they were like, dude. You want to be in a band? We should start a band. Like, we kind of have a band. And I'm like, I kind of play bass. I just got one. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be in a band. All right. Now it's like, I think I've done everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that would be about it. Here we are. Okay, let's be in a band. So, we don't have a drummer, but we get together and we're like, I'm learning how to play the bass and they're kind of learning how to play their instruments as well. Eric's a pretty good guitar player, even back then. And um, we, we were kind of in our infancy and then um, I was with Plus Fanzine, I was getting letters from kids kind of uh, on the East Coast mainly because I was selling stuff at shows. And um, this kid from... Manasquan, New Jersey, was starting at PCA, because it wasn't the university yet. He was starting PCA that year, and he was a drummer, and did I know anybody who needed a drummer? And I was like, funny enough, I (laughs) do too. So we got together at the Kennel Clubs, first time I ever met him. Um, Met him at the dorms at PCA, we went down to the Kennel, pretty sure it was the adolescence show. And um, our first practice was Halloween night of 1986. And it was fucking cool, because now I was in a band, mm-hmm. and we were like, kind of, we're okay. 
And uh, we practiced a bunch, and it was hard to find a place to practice. So the guys in Legitimate Reason, they had a place. This, their drummer, Grant, we were able to practice at his house down in Mayfair. And um, we, we did stuff there. And Was everybody in agreement uh, as to like what, what sort of music you'd be playing? I mean, did you have similar tastes? You know, we all love the same bands. So we just went in and we're like, you know, how's the song? We'd never had that established, like... So when you come in, here's how you write a song. It was just like, I got a song. It goes, how's that? Cool. What are the changes? What notes do? Does it sound okay? For like me, I've never fucking played a bass before. Boom, 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 boom. Cool. All right. We kind of sucked. And um, but since I knew everybody, I was like, dude, we're totally getting it. Like I think we're ready. Who's ready? So this is October. End of November. I think it was December, making up the date, 6th, 12th, something like that. Dude, got us a show. What? We're not ready for a show. Oh, we're ready for a show. We're not ready for a show. Dude, let's go. All right, let's do it. And then we played The Crypt. And it was, we did a couple of songs. We did Paranoid from Black Sabbath. And then we did the intro to We Gotta Know from the Cro-Mags. Mm-hmm. And it was stupid, and it was fucking awesome. <laughs> right. And that's all I wanted to do. So that's I focused my attention solely on that. And, you know, it's 19 fucking 86, December of 86. We played a show in Delaware a couple weeks after that, and I'll be damned. We recorded our first 7-inch in January, my birthday of 1987 so my 20th birthday i've come a long way from my 19th to my 20th birthday Mm -hmm. a lot happens in a year span we recorded immaculate conception and it came out on positive force which was kevin seconds label yes so initially plus was going to release it i was going to just put it out myself i can i release records i'll put our record out so we recorded it, and then we went down to the crypt after we recorded it, and hung out with a bunch of people, and I played it for a bunch of people, and they're like, "Oh my god, it's fucking awesome!" We're like, "Oh my god, I know, isn't it? Like, it's really cool. Not because it's great music, but because holy crap, I recorded something mm-hmm. with my friends, yeah. and it's fucking." And um, and and then it just it turned into something because I was still kind of talking with Kevin, and I was like, you know what, man. In, in a conversation, he was like, send me, send me your tape. So I sent him a tape. And I got a telephone call from him. He's like, listen, man, I think it's fucking, I think your record's great. Um, do you think I can put it out on positive force? Like, <laughs> do you oh think? my fucking God. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? Bam. That's, it was that easy. So it comes, it gets pressed. He presses it for us. It gets out. I'm fucking selling it to people. I'm selling it to Maxim Rock and Roll. Like, uh, not selling it to Maxim. Put ads for it in Maxim Rock and Roll. And, you know, people are buying it. And then I went out to just visit some friends who lived in Davis and hung out in Davis, California and hung out in, uh, that's when I went to the Maxim Rock and Roll house and stayed there for a few days with them and hung out with Tim and Martin and, I mean, just, it, it wasn't like this bond of, like, lifetime friendships, but I'm just, the acceptance was just, like, I was Tim's friend. Mm-hmm. But now, I see Jello by Offer again, and I'm like, hey, can I say something to you? I just wanted to tell you. 
I did a show for you. And I sent you like 2000 It was a stupid amount of money. And man, I didn't even get a thank you back. And he was genuinely embarrassed. That's great. And he was humbled, and he was really not... And I, and I wasn't making a scene. It wasn't even like I was like, Tim, everybody. I was just like, dude, like, you know. Yeah. And like, there's a lot of people who fucking stand up for people like you when nobody was... Like, when the government was fucking coming at you. Mm -hmm. I'm doing like nuclear freeze walks and you know I'm, I'm doing all this stuff that I feel is making a change locally by you know doing stuff in, in March for Racism and walking down the street and helping out local organizations but now like dude you're in trouble and like I got a bunch of bands and like I didn't even get a thank you and and he totally apologized and totally thanked me that's I wasn't even shooting for it but actually I kind of was yeah. and that was it it was right here it was that that small mm-hmm but that made me realize that things were so much bigger. It's like fucking Tipper Gore coming, who's soon to be Mrs. Vice President. Mm -hmm. Tipper Gore coming at this guy who sings in a band that I totally fucking have met before. Yeah, yeah. I'm on a list somewhere, I'm sure. If I'm fucking supporting this guy, wow, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So um, it was at that point that where my friend Bessie was like, we went down and met Pusshead. And really cool guy went into his house. He was talking about. He put out a compilation. Eventually, was it the cleanse the bacteria? It was a cleanse of bacteria. Fucking great! Record. And pagan babies were supposed to be on it. We just. Oh, I wish you were on there. Oh my god! Would be <coughs> fucking that, that amazing. Would be great. Yeah, that that is a, such a terrific record. Um, yeah, but he was he was a super nice guy and went in and looked at all his Japanese toys that he had and all of his art and you know he was just he was pusshead. He was Brian Schroeder. He was just a dude, you mm. know. Um, and it was cool and he was like he, he listened to our tape and he thought we were great he was like yeah man send me a track for it or whatever and just it never meshed together phone calls happened you know I called and left messages but I didn't care and didn't think anything twice about it um, but then at that point now it's just like positive force and immaculate conception and then it was and then maximum rock and roll I went on to the maximum rock and roll show to promote the record, so now it's like international, and we're getting like letters from kids from fucking all over the world now, mm -hmm. um, and it was it was unbelievable. It was like, Dad, Japan, some kid in Japan digs the music that me and my friends make. In your face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What does he think of that? I mean, it must seem like the, the weirdest. Uh, thing. It's the weirdest thing, but it's still nothing at all. Do you make money? Yeah, make no. Money. <laughs> you right. still have to have a job, right? Yeah. All right, then. Okay, whatever. Still living in your basement, but not for long. Because <laughs> it was on and off. And, and then it, um... Then we got a, got a pretty cool break. Seven seconds was like, hey, we're coming out. We want you guys to play some shows with us on the East Coast. This so, is summer eighty seven. Now we're in the summer of eighty seven. Okay. So that was the first time we played CBs. Um, it was us, Token Entry, Justice League, and Seven Seconds. We we're the opening band. I walked up this fucking CBGs and was just like flashing back to like the Trouser Press and the Rock Scene magazine and all of that stuff, and I'm like, I'm about to get on the stage that all of these people have stood on. Yeah. And then you go inside and you're like, the police have played here. Elvis Costello has played here. 
television and Debbie Harry with Blondie and Patti Smith and all of these fucking bands have stood, ACDC has stood Mm -hmm. right there. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah, now you're part of this thing. And now I'm part of this. And it's just, it feels like it's better than me having got on stage at the Tower Mm -hmm. or... Or the fucking spectrum. It's just, it means something. And the place fills up. And you play. And people stare at you. And then you strike some notes that sound like something. It makes them want to move. And then all of a sudden, everyone who is still just goes, And you're like, oh my god! You made that. New York City! (laughs) Motherfuckers! And, and it's just awesome. And then you end your set, and then people are like, that was fucking cool. And that was... Wow. That was fucking amazing. Yeah, you got to be shooting through the roof. After yeah. Because you, yeah. you got a New York audience to right react. There. Yeah. That was fucking amazing. So we did that, and we played at the Hung Jewelry in D.C., and then we played in some weird place in Lidditz, PA., and we were supposed to do a bunch of other shows. But what happened to the Philly Seven Second Show? Because they were supposed to play Philly. They right? were supposed and to play Philly. Play. Couldn't even tell you why it never happened. Because that was the first show that I ever went to, which I would have loved to have said was Seven Seconds, but was without Seven Seconds. They're on the fucking flyer. Wow. <laughs> but there was no band. Couldn't even tell you because, you know what? Some stuff did fall apart because we were also supposed to play all the way down into North Carolina, South Carolina, down in Alabama with them. And they never happened. It fell apart. So um, we went back to Philly and we're like, we were writing new songs. It was a great summer because we, we all lived in this house in Wildwood, New Jersey on uh, Maplewood. On Maple Avenue? Maplewood. Um, like the whole band. We all, the, with the exception of Bruce, because he was living in Manasquan for most of the summer. Me, Michael, slept in this bed. Dan and Eric slept in this bed. We were like the fucking four stooges. <laughs> Very intimate relations there. <laughs> yes. And then we would go upstairs and practice, and we'd throw mattresses in the heat of Wildwood. We'd throw mattresses against all of the windows, set up a drum kit, and fucking practice. And I remember just all of us yeah. in our underwear, fucking sweat pouring down. It was in a very ripe room. Ah. <laughs> It, but what was amazing is because we were getting tighter and tighter and tighter and we were writing songs and the songs were, were becoming like really fucking cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So we got to a point where it was like, we need to fucking record this stuff. And, um, you know, Positive Force was just, Seven Seconds was a big thing and Kevin ran Positive Force. Well, he's in seven seconds, and they're fucking touring the world, I'm sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was just, it was a challenge to to make stuff happen. And I, from having my own label, I knew it was a challenge, because, like, I couldn't always focus all my time on putting somebody else's stuff together, because mm-hmm. I also had to have a job. Um, I also was in a band now. So I, I kind of understood it, so I was like, I think, let's record something new, and I'll release this one. Is this supposed to be the LP? This is the LP, yeah. So, um, at this point, we... are now in the summer of 80, coming out of the summer of 87, so it's the fall of 87, and, um, and we're playing, we played 
what was the last show, the last Sunday matinee, the classic Sunday matinee at CB's where Youth of Today plays. So Ray called me up and was like, we want you guys to play the show with us. It's going to be us and Gorilla Biscuits and Side by Side and you guys. So we were like, it was this fucking New York straight edge thing with Pagan Babies, mm-hmm. you know? And, and just by being on that bill alone gave us this, like, acceptance into the New York scene. We don't, we played with Youth of Today that summer. We played with Uniform Choice that summer. So it was like, we we're just friends. We we're all just friends. So we got on the bill and, um, and it was cool. But Michael said this thing on stage about the Islanders. And and somebody had a beef with it. This is the hockey one of the team. other bands. Yeah, <laughs> somebody had a beef. Whatever they had a beef. I think it was Gorilla Biscuits. Somebody had a beef with the Pagan Babies because of a stupid fucking hockey thing. Yeah, who cares about hockey what? in America? So it's the opening song, and Michael jumps up and kicks the bridge of my bass and breaks it. Yeah, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> and I'm like, and like I'm playing it for I'm like, fuck, something's wrong and I can't fix it. So I'm like, I'm looking around, like the song ends terribly. Because it's like, and I'm looking around, I'm like, man, I need a fucking bass. And like, the other bands are just fucking staring at me. And I'm like, no fucking way. Like, dude, I'm, we're, and there's, all of these people are here to say us, and you guys aren't helping us. And Jules, the singer from Side by Side, totally fucking cool guy, got me a bass. I think he went over and, and even laid into one of the guys, but I know that he was responsible for fucking getting me a bass. This is from the Islanders comment? It was from a stupid comment, Jesus. man. I don't even know if it was made that day. It was probably made during a fucking summer. It was just stupid. And um, it, nonetheless, I get a bass... And we finish the set out, and it's a fucking great set. The night before the show, I actually shaved my head. I got, like, stubble. It's bleach blonde. I remember this for a reason, because I never cut my hair again. Mm-hmm. I didn't cut my hair for, like, 15 years after that. Wait, your, how long did your hair get? It was, like, down my head. Jesus. crazy. Pierre Robert. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> On the MMR tip. Um, so then, then we, uh, we, we did that. And then Youth of Today had their big thing, and they invited all these kids up on the stage, and it was a big deal. And, like, Youth of Today was banned from playing there again for a while, and there were supposed to be no more Sunday matinees. But, like, Pagan Babies didn't get banned because we had nothing to do with it. So we played CBs, like, three or four more times. No, wait, what year was this? Uh, this is uh, 87. Okay. It's the, we're now in the winter of 1987. Mm-hmm. So during this time... There's other bands. Like I said, Jules from Side by Side, fucking super cool guy. Um, Timmy Chunks, the singer for Token Entry, super cool guy. We're just, we're becoming acquainted with these people. And, and when they came down and played in Philly, we'd hang out with them and all this stuff. So, just really cool time. There's this guy by the name of John Bellow, who's friends with Token Entry, came to see us and was like, You guys are fucking awesome. I want to put you right. Re- I'm starting up this new record label here. In New York, uh, it's going to be a subsidiary of Roadrunner Records. It's going to be strict hardcore stuff, and uh, we we want you guys to be the first release. <laughs> oh God! And we'll give you an advance. An advance, yeah. An advance, <laughs> like what the fuck, man? That's crazy talk. Mm-hmm. So, um, we we went into a recording studio over in Cinnaminson, and we recorded a fucking album that somebody else paid for, and that was amazing. 
and it turned out being next and then we played a bunch of shows we played with the exploited then then, then people are just like calling it was really cool because i no longer have to call places places are calling me to come play yeah it's like, fantastic that you get these records out on two really iconic hardcore labels yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, and and like we it was it was earned because again like Connie from Seabees was calling us to say, I want you guys to come up and play with the Iceman. Um, okay. Fucking <laughs> Seabees calls me now. Yeah. Not that like you've made it, but just that like you are now friends with people who are like, yeah, Pagan Babies. I can totally rely on Pagan Babies, A, to show up and be cool, B, not be prima donnas about the amount of money that we're going to fucking pay mm-hmm. them. Because it wasn't about making any money, you know. Um, and C, the people like them. People come in and see them. They sell shirts. You know, we sell fucking tons of shirts and shit. Yeah, and this is, a, this is a meritocracy in action. I mean, this is, you know, like you say, it's all earned. Yeah. You know, step by step. Step by step. It was a beautiful, natural progression. So then we do that. And then it was just like, all right, well, now, you know, you guys were going to need to go ahead and tour to support this. And, you know, we set up a tour and... And we went, drove across the country and only played a handful of shows because nobody really knew who Pagan Babies were and nobody was really interested in booking us. It was, it was disheartening to a small degree, mm-hmm. but at the same time, some places were like, yeah, man, totally fun come out. So our destination was to get out to play Gilman Street and we played like four shows on the way out. Mm-hmm. You know, we could have played 20, but it was just like we'll go from hopscotch our way across the country. And then uh, we played Salt Lake City. It was bizarre because like... We headlined the show and we're like, oh my god, like we weren't totally like, oh, uh, really? This is weird. But like a bunch of people came out. We had some weird metal band, metal cover band open up for us. <laughs> yeah, perfect. it was bizarre. Um, but you know, it was like backstage passes and you know, Brad had drinks for us and it was just, it was just we were, it was cool. Were you still straight edge at the time? I was still straight edge at the mm-hmm. time. Were any of the other band members straight edge? No. Okay. <laughs> right. You know what? I think it was falling off that straight edge thing at this time. You were, okay. Actually, I'm pretty confident. Yeah, and how, how were you falling off? I mean, what were the, the fissures of the cracks in the edge? Was just drink a couple of beers kind of thing, smoke a little bit kind of stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, again, it was like no big deal, but it was what was kind of funny is that we were hanging out with Youth of Today and all of these straight edge bands, but we weren't espousing like in our lyrics or anything like that. Um, and even in our behaviors, we weren't like a bunch of drunks. You weren't Murphy's around. Law. Right, yeah. we weren't Murphy's Law. Yeah. So, um, boom, 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 all this stuff happens, drive across the country, and then play the Gilman Street. Was this Gilman, this would have been like year one, right? Say, yeah. you're this, saying this is This is 1980, 1988. Right, this this is the summer yeah. of 1988. Gilman Street was there for a little while. Um... Do you remember who you played with that, Gilman? Yeah, Plaid Redna. Okay. Yeah. Was the band that we played with. We were, by we were hoping to have played with our boys, Operation Ivy, because we played with Op Ivy out in Connecticut at the Anthrax. It was us. Dude, it was Guar, Pagan Babies, and Operation Jesus, Ivy. what a lineup on that show. And Guar, it was their first fucking tour, and like... Oh my God! What am I watching? This yeah, is. I don't insane. think anyone had ever seen anything like that. I saw the Nothing. early shows at like uh, City Gardens and stuff. Yeah, you know, and you're just or revival. And you're yeah. covered in monster semen. Or yeah, whatever. and that was <laughs> the chick, and she did her yeah, thing, yeah. and I'm standing like backstage, and backstage is literally just behind the stage, and this chick comes back, and she just got done doing her thing, and 
and um, she just she's covered in goop and she takes her every she's naked standing in front of me and I'm like like don't stare be cool be cool <laughs> like totally be cool hey you guys are really awesome oh my god you're a naked girl and you're beautiful and you're uh. okay I handled it pretty well total poker face so um, yeah so when, when we got the Gilman Street the cracks in pagan babies were kind of coming to light personalities were just like conflicting um you know i'd known michael all of my life michael was in my second grade class from second grade to like seventh grade and then you know he went to a different high school but we we'd known each other forever mm -hmm. um and you're you're in a van with a bunch of people, and there's a lot of arguing, and then there's a lot of laughs. But it was still like personalities. Eric was kind of going this way with musically, and you know, we, we were having an argument. I, Bruce always tells this story really funny, but Lint, Tim Armstrong from fucking Op Ivy, we're we're at Gilman Street. We're all hanging out, mm -hmm. and we're having an argument. <laughs> And he's like pounding on the door. He's like, man, come on in. Bruce opens the door and goes, we're having a band meeting. <laughs> Fucking slams the door in his face. Okay, oh, that was really weird, you know. And then we got all out. people. Yeah, of all people. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, you know, you fucking Rancid could have fucking taken us to the top with him. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it was a really fun time. And then on the way back, we we missed playing with Poison Idea by one night in. Salt Lake City on the way out. That's a shame. Man. Huge fucking shame. Yeah. They stayed at the same house that we did. And then on the way back, I was asleep and Bruce pulled over in Salt Lake City. He just wanted to go back to Salt Lake City. To live there? No, to just yeah. fucking, because we had such a great time. We hung in Salt Lake for like two or three days. Mm -hmm. We stopped back in Salt Lake City. We're hanging out with Brad. He's like, man, Dag Nasty's playing on Saturday. You guys want to play with them? He's like, fuck, sure. I went to see Iron Maiden Friday night. They were playing at the Great Salt Lake, whatever their fucking thing is called. So me and my friend uh, Tweedo, we went to see Iron Maiden and Guns N' Roses at the Salt Lake Center thing. And then the next night we played with Dag Nasty. And it was a fucking amazing time hanging out with Dag Nasty and Brian Baker and Dave Smalley. I don't know if Dave Smalley was with him at the time. I think he was. Um, but yeah, great time. Then we just drove back to Philly and didn't play... Another show for we we played a couple of shows during that summer, but like they were just okay. Again, you can you could feel things were kind of getting personalities were kind of conflicting. We'd spent a ton of time together, mm -hmm. so um, when we got back in September that year. We played with Social D at City Gardens, um, which is a really cool thing to say that we did to to play with them. Um, How, what were your feelings about City Gardens? Were you were you attending shows there outside uh, of the you know performance? No, never. <laughs> City Gardens, as much as I thought it was a cool place, once we played there, the first time we played there was with the Exploited, and that was fucking insane. Um, I don't know if you ever heard the story about that, but a fucking riot. It was a riot, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, it, and that we were part of that was fucking crazy. And yeah, you should, you should actually, actually... Let me let me pause this for a second, because sure. uh, I want to give the cats some food okay. stuff. Okay. Meowing. Yeah. Uh, see people are texting me. Yeah, right. Uh, you were going to tell me about the riot. Uh, Dude, exploited. exploited the riot at City Garbage. Yeah, that was... It. Well, so City Gardens, in having done shows in Philly... 
Um, I won't say that there was a grudge, but th there was a couple of different occasions where we couldn't get a band to play in Philly because they were playing at City Gardens. Some people did. I think Chuck had an issue with yeah. booking and things yeah. like that. So being in a band now, you want to play as many shows that you can, and you want to play in f two things. You want to play as many shows as you can, three things. You want to play with bands you really like, and you want to play in front of a bunch of people to you know get your exposure. So when the time came... Um, the city gardens thing. I think Randy called me and offered to exploit it, and I was like, "That's fucking crazy!" Like the exploit it, they're huge. Yeah. Like that's a huge show. Wow. Okay, I thought we'd you know play with nobody. Mm -hmm. Um, sure. Okay, we'll do it. And it was uh, it was us, the uprise. So it was like the exploit it. The Uprise, Pagan Babies, Vision. I think it was Vision's like first show or one of their first shows. But anyway, um, pretty funny time. You go in, there was like a million people there. Uh, Timmy Chunks came to hang out with us. We were in the midst of recording for uh, uh, recording Next. That was all kind of going on at that time. And uh, yeah, Timmy Chunks came to hang out with us. Um, and it was just like this really good vibe hanging out, but there was, with us as friends, but there was also like this really uncomfortable vibe of like skinheads versus punks. And like, well, you got the uprise playing the show. Right. Did you know so, them? Knew of them, talked with them a couple of times. Um, Jimmy, skinny Jimmy, their singer, nice kid, a little confused at the time, um, but a super nice kid. He was just really young, and we, we all got along. That's the again, that's the thing. Like we wound up getting along with everyone. I didn't really see this blatant um, racist thing that I had heard about with the uprise. Yeah, we should like, explain for folks who don't know because right. they're ultimately a pretty insignificant yeah. band. Is that they were. Suburban Uprise. They were right? Suburban Uprise. And then as Uprise, they were known as a white power band, as a white which was power. something that was quite popular in certain quarters at the yes. time, late 80s, early 90s, yeah. skinheads on Geraldo, all of that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but in having known them through other people, I didn't really th understand why they came, allowed themselves to come off that way. Mm -hmm. Because there were all, I saw conflicting personalities, within, personas, within the band. personas. Mm -hmm. Like it almost seemed that like that was a persona. I'm not saying it is. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, but it seemed like that. Like, dude, like I drove to your house. I, just a friend of mine, this girl I knew was friends with them. And like, I don't know, I hung out with them one time and watched fucking Married with Children with them with, in their family's house. Mm -hmm. And it was just like a normal, and it, there wasn't like this weird thing coming from them not that i guess like white power people sit down and say white power every two sentences but let's listen to the great speeches of hitler for yes. a while in german <laughs> but I, I just didn't know what to make of them and then we played with them and you know i wound up not knowing what to make of them because i was kind of friendish with some of their friends who weren't necessarily that way mm. well in performing did they project the the politics. I mean, did they have anything overt to give to the audience? In the back of my mind, the only thing I remember was this whole America thing. 
And that's all I really got from them. So, Exploited takes the stage, and the skinheads were out in full force, and, you know, fucking braces and boots and everything, and it was American flags waving and people fucking spitting at Wadi, and we were up... City Gardens has this... They're, like, backstage band areas kind of up on the side of the stage, and you're looking down like this... And we, I have video of it. We fucking videotaped people mm -hmm. just fucking spitting all over Wadi. He was just dripping with spitting. Fucking skinheads just jumping up on the stage and being like, come on, man, let's fucking do it. Let's fight right now. Yeah. You know, and Wadi just being like, God, get the fuck away yeah. from it. Like, he handled it in such a way that I just don't know I would ever want to be in that situation. But it was just, it was, it was a war. And it spilled outside. People fucking trashed their vehicle. And it was just, it was a fucking mess. And personally, I was like, man, I don't ever want to fucking be part of anything like that again. And that was my very first impression of City Gardens. Mm -hmm. It's like, I hope the next time we play here, it's not a scene like that. That place pretty much totally sucked. <laughs> uh, but but you, you got a good reaction then for your performance? We got a great reaction for our performance. Um, Dedicated song to Uncle Sam or something to keep the skin. Yeah, happy. just keep those guys. Hey, you cool guys. <laughs> um, and then you know, Randy. Randy was a really nice guy. Just again, you start talking to people, and you're, you're like, "Oh wait, so what's your deal? You're a mailman? Oh, okay. And mm -hmm. this is what you do on the side? Hmm, pretty interesting. You're just bringing through cool bands that you want to see. Yeah, that's the common thread. Like the people who were doing shows and putting records out. If you go all the way back to when I started the story, it's just so you can be part of it all. Mm -hmm. You were just part of it. So that's all Randy, did, from my perspective, that's all Randy was really doing was just, he liked this band, these bands started calling him, next thing you know, he's a fucking, he's a machine and he's playing, all these bands are coming in to play his place and he's booking them. So he called us and asked us to play with the Crumb Suckers one time, which is a weird thing because that was... Again, the whole metal crossover. Mosh. Yeah, and it was the moshing and whatever. Um, you know, so Pagan Babies were just doing our thing, and that September came around. We played with Social D. The record was out. It was it was on. People, like, fucking loved us, loved coming to see us. There was a lot of... It was just... there was We played a lot of shows, and reaction everywhere we went was really cool. For me, I think one of the... The greatest times, the last two shows that we did in Philly were the fucking most amazing things back then that, that I had played. We played at Revival in a place went fucking bananas. But what show was that? Do you remember it was in December played? and it was with the She-Males. Um, it was a bunch of, I think it was She-Males and Trained Attack Dogs and Dead Spot and maybe Infection played that show. The kids went fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew our songs. It was just like this. Yeah, yeah. Is what, this is what I've been fucking waiting for. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is fucking amazing. And then we played a pizzazz show with um, Instead and some other band. I can't remember who else. And that was the same kind of thing. We have that one on video. Yeah, I think it was at that show. You read that one? Yeah. And yeah. then the fucking place went bananas. I mean, kids were fucking all over the place. And it was just, you know, that's what that's what it was all about. And then, um, then we played a show with Seven Seconds 
up in at the Anthrax in Connecticut. And it was a great time. And I left my base up there by accident. And they brought it back to City Gardens. So I drove up to City Gardens the next day and picked up my base. Short time after that, I used to work at Tower Records and um, I came in from work one day. We And right now, we're at the planning stages of putting out our next record. And again, like we had gotten an advance to do the first one. This one was like, where do you want to record it at? Who do you want to produce it? Uh-huh. So Dan, Dan wanted to be owner of all of that, which was totally cool. So Dan, I think it was his idea. Maybe it was the record. Tom Lyle, the guitar player from Government Issue, they were going to get in touch with him and have him produce our record at a fucking studio, some Lion's Mouth studio or something down in Virginia. And that's mm-hmm. what we were going to do. And it was like, that's what we were going to do. Yeah. And the second record was going to be recorded there. I, so I worked at Tower Records at the time. And I came in from I came in for work one day. I was working a late shift, and um, this girl Laurel answers the phone. She was like, "Hey, you got you got a message from some guy from Chicago called some English sounding dude." And I was like, "Okay." So I called him back, and it was this dude. He was um, he was a manager for Broken Bones, mm-hmm. and Broken Bones wanted us to tour with them in the U.S. Kind of, it's kind of a strange pairing, isn't it? I mean, but precisely. So Broken Bones <laughs> knew Pagan Babies and said, "These, uh, you know, of all the bands, these are the of guys." Of all the bands, I think yeah. it was like a record label was like, "Hey, why don't you get in touch with our band and whatever?" Mm-hmm. Broken Bones called us and was like, "Tour with us. We'll use your equipment. We go back to England. Tour with us. You use our equipment." <sighs> oh my God! Right. I'm like, I ran down into the break room at fucking Tower Records. I'm like, oh my God, no fucking way. I'm like making phone calls and nobody's calling me back. World comes crashing down. Michael just got a job at the post office. Which he still has. Which he still has. <laughs> he, he couldn't leave for any chunk of time. Bruce is like, dude, I go to school can't leave school oh my god what what are we fuck are you kidding me <sighs> oh my god you can't go solo right it's like it's worth tenting though it may be. <sighs> and everybody else seemed kind of disinterested in it and then it was like you know i didn't think it was going to turn into this kind of thing and you know i like playing local shows but this whole touring thing it's not for then it just it got weird. I, I couldn't even tell you that that was more than likely that was the catalyst. But then it was just like we were supposed to play at CB's for a record released showcase for all the hawker hawker bands, and it was us and Rest in Pieces and No for an Answer and Token Entry. So it was five of us on the show, four of us, whatever it was, and they were going to record it and release that as an album. Mm-hmm. We broke up instead. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, what? 
why are we breaking up? Yeah, that hurts. Yeah, the, to have that trajectory. Yes. You know, it's just pure up, and then. Yeah. Then it was like it was like an all or nothing kind of thing, and um, and I was just like, I I don't know what to say. I don't know what to fucking do. So our last show was it's seven seconds in fucking the Anthrax in Connecticut, and that was and we didn't play again. And that was it. And we just decided we were just not going to play. And that was it. And how did this leave you feeling at this point? I mean, were you... It was fucking heartbreaking. I didn't want to do anything. I I feigned interest in playing with other bands, but I didn't want anything to do with it. It's like my feelings were hurt in a way that like... I just never wanted to fucking play music again. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At all. Uh, I played a little bit. Played a couple little things for... Right now we're talking, this is uh, the winter of... This is like January of 89. Um, maybe even later than that. February of 89. March 89. Didn't want anything to do with it. Summer came rolling around. Met somebody. Actually, before I met somebody. Summer came rolling around. I was hating everything. And I was hating just being in Philly. It was there's There was just so much that I didn't want to be part of. Mm-hmm. So I was friends with the Serial Killers. And they were going on tour. And they asked me if I wanted to roadie for them so I had this genius idea this will be funny that I'm now recording this I had this fucking genius idea I was going to join Poison Idea Poison Idea (laughs) did Poison Idea know this? no did you have to gain 3,000 pounds to join the band or something? well Myrtle Myrtle was a really skinny guy okay (laughs) (laughs) he was the skinny one that's what I was gonna be I just in my head here was my plan. I was going to meet serial killers in Portland and never come back. So I bought a one-way ticket. And like a bag of crank or something? To just get to give to them. Thank God I didn't go to Portland. <laughs> I bought a one-way ticket to Portland. Totally did. Um, I trashed my room in Philadelphia. I, just, I was just like fucking disgusted with everything. I trashed my room. Bought a one-way ticket, and that was the plan. Did they need a, a bass player? Oh. In, okay, so. I was just going okay. to move to Portland, and one way or another... It's a nice city. From what I hear, it is. <laughs> yeah. And then what happened? And I met somebody. And I met somebody like a week after I bought a one-way ticket. So ticket, trash can? Ticket, lost a couple hundred dollars on it. Never flew out. Never met up with serial killers. Um, year later, I was married and moved to North Carolina. Why North Carolina? Um, the girl I was married to, her family was living in North Carolina at the time, and it seemed just like a, to get away from Philadelphia kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, moved to a hundred acre farm. Man, it's quite a difference from a huge city of Philadelphia. Huge difference. 
Where, where did this farm? Did you buy that farm, or was no. this something that? Been- so like this 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 guy, this lawyer owned the land. There was a hundred and ten year old house on the land. He rented it out for five hundred dollars a month. Better than whatever I got available to me in Philadelphia. Did you sure. become a farmer? No, just lived on the land and worked at Peaches Record Store. Mm-hmm. Um, worked at Peaches for, and, and the, the, again, the plan was just to leave. There was no plan when I got down there. There was right. no plan for how long to be there. There was just no plan. And I'd done that kind of like my whole life. There was never really a plan. It was just you, whatever door winds up opening is just the door you step through. And everything kind of led to the next step, the next step, the next step. And then I showed up in North Carolina. And uh, when the initial money ran out, had a good job, got a job at Peaches, was a store manager there for a little while until that didn't work out. And then I was like, well, I'm a graphic artist. Maybe I'll try that out. Get back into it. Because, I mean, I had done a bunch of freelance things up here. Um, it's kind of... You know, I'd work at a restaurant, but I'd also do artwork on the side for somebody, or I'd work a tower, but I'd also help, you know, do people do ads and layout and stuff. Um, so it was just stuff that I did, but then it was like, well, now I need a job, like a real job, because I kind of like it here in North Carolina. It's like, again, I'm living on a farm. 100 acres is like, it's, I, unless you stand in the middle of 100 acres, do you realize how fucking yeah, yeah. huge 100 acres is? It's city blocks fucking as far as you're gonna I'm still waiting for my 100 acres and a mule there you go it ain't happening it ain't happening so like it was just it was wide open spaces it changed a lot of um, a lot of things just faded away Uh, a lot of skins were shed I was just I was more relaxed I was more in tune with like the world around me not like in a hippie kind of way but just like I don't know communicating with people drive down the road somebody waves at you they were just being nice. Yeah. What do you know? Walking to a restaurant. Hey, how's it going? It was just, it was a totally different vibe from anything I'd really ever experienced anything mm-hmm. up to that point. Um, well, and, this time, where, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but uh, were you, did you distance yourself from punk? I mean, you would, clearly you'd moved away from the music, from the city. Yeah. So the, the scene as well. The scene as well in, yeah, totally. It was just like, it was, it was in my rear view mirror. But I still taught when I was working at Peaches, I was still like fucking selling hardcore shit. I'd be in there, people come in looking for like fucking Metallica. I'd be like, really? Check out Poison Idea. Mm-hmm. That's what you should be listening to. Fuck Enter Sandman. You should be listening to that shit. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was gearing people that way. But then it was at that same exact time where I was like, fucking Nirvana. My God, never mind. Just blew the fuck up. And then it, it just. Because at that time when I was in Philly. That's when it was like Soundgarden and Nirvana and Tad and, and that whole sub pop thing was blowing up. But, you know, Civ came out of New York City and Gorilla Biscuits. I was like, Gorilla Biscuits? Those were the guys who were like right above us on the bill when we played at Seabees that one time. Mm-hmm. But now, I mean, these bands were like bands. Mm-hmm. They were huge and sick of it all. It was like fucking huge. And Agnostic Front was fucking huge. And like, wow, this is weird. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple years later, Lollapalooza happens. And like, Green Day's on the bill. And L7's on the bill. And um, we, we got backstage. 
for the show down there, Frank from uh, Anthrophobia, got us backstage passes because he was friends with L7. And I go walking back. And so we're, we're only in like 94, I think it is. And um, so I'm four years separated from stuff. And, and I knew stuff was happening. And during that time, I, I kind of knew things were going on. But, you know, Pennywise and, I mean, there was a whole genre of music that was happening that was coming out of what we had done that was now the offspring. It was now, well, I witnessed the Green Day thing because, so we're at the show and Frank gets us backstage and I go back there and fucking Brubaker's back there tightening roller skates for L7. And I'm like, Brew, what the fuck is going on? He's like, bang a tour, what's happening? And I'm like, oh my God, we're this and that. And, uh, you know, L7's over here and Brew's there doing the roller skate thing. And he goes, Paulie Hyman's here. You know, Paulie from fucking Serial Killers. He's right out. He, he was just there. So I'm like, what? No fucking way. I, oh my God. So I open the door. I go walking outside. And I'm like, where is he? And he goes, oh, he's right up there. And he's being led up onto the stage. Fucking Paul Bear from the Serial Killers being let up on the stage with the Bad Seeds. Because Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds are playing. And Nick Cave isn't there. Wow. So I'm like, that was Paul? Because Paul intro introduced L7 and fucking totally antagonized the whole North Carolina crowd as to how backward-ass fucking hicks they were and where Barney Fife was. I'm like, who's this guy insulting everybody? Oh my God, it's fucking Paulie Hyman. Holy shit. So anyway... I go running out the side of the stage. I'm standing there, and there's like, it was the the year the Beastie Boys played, so there was like a fucking million people out there. And Paulie Hyman's standing out there doing like fucking birthday party song, and I want to be your dog from fucking Iggy and the Stooges yeah, that with was, the bad seeds. It was the weirdest. I'm like, <laughs> I know this guy. You people have no idea who this guy is, and you're cheering him. Wow. And he's just like in fucking heaven. I'm sure he was. And meanwhile, like, Super Chunk is playing on a side stage, and that's John Worcester from fucking Philly also, who's now Guy. He's playing in all these bands, and he's doing all this stuff, and it's just, everything is fucking blowing up. So anyway, set ends. I talked to Paul for a little bit, and then I'm just fucking walking around. And at this point, my hair is, like, down mid-back, really long, curly hair. I've got a beard. And What, uh, what is this look about? I don't want to... Uh... Please make me understand. It I mean, just, it's certainly in contrast to the way that you look now. So totally like, in contrast to yeah. this look, but it was just, I, I don't know. I just, it was the evolution of me. It was it was cool to not have to shave. Hate shaving. Fucking dragging a razor across your face. I hate it, man. So that's just what I, I that, and I'm walking backstage, and I'm literally, I'm as close to Meteor Cat. I'm watching the Beastie Boys fucking play basketball. And they're just standing there playing basketball. And there's a really funny Beastie Boy story I totally left out. But they're playing basketball, and I look over here, and I'm like, oh my god. That's fucking Timmy Chunks from Token Entry pushing, like, a cabinet. So I go walking over, and I'm like, dude. And he's like, dude. And, and we have this weird little exchange. I was like, you have no idea who I am, dude. He doesn't recognize you underneath all Not the at all. And he goes, no. And I was like, how Captain, about Captain now? Caveman? And he goes, no, I totally look like Captain Caveman. <laughs> so he doesn't get it. And, and then finally, I fucking pull out my driver's license. And he looks at me. He's like, 
Mark Pingator, oh my God, oh my God, hugs and all that stuff. He goes, who are you here with? And I was like, uh, my friends. <laughs> He's like, what band? And I was like, no, I live here. And he goes, really? Like, wow, and I thought you'd be like torn with somebody or something. I was like, who are you here with? He goes, oh, I'm with Green Day. I'm their fucking tech, whatever. From that point on, every time I turn around, he's Timmy Chunks is in a fucking Green Day video. Timmy Chunks is standing on the stage with Green Day at Woodstock. Timmy Chunks is on fucking Saturday Night Live standing there leaning against the cabin. I'm like, oh my God. Green Day is Green Day. And I'm like, these dudes fucking play the City Gardens. These dudes play Gilman Street. Mm -hmm. These, holy shit, these dudes are fucking gazillionaires selling zillions of records. Wow. Short time after that, I got a letter from Michael. It was like fucking four pages mm -hmm. of just like how much he missed Pagan Babies. And this is 94, 95 maybe. And uh, we talked a little bit and, and that was kind of the extent of it. But, you know, then I just did what I did. Worked, worked in advertising. Um, music was still in my life. I was listening to stuff. Um... I liked a lot of stuff. So that's what, like, Napster and, you know, there was an internet. And I'm listening to fucking all of this stuff from all over the world now. And I'm like, man, I wish there was an internet when I was doing this shit. Mm -hmm. But I was fucking writing the scene reports out by hand and having these amazing exchanges with humans all over the world. If I had a computer to do this with, this would be insane. Holy shit, man. What what could I have done with that power? Yeah, but it's cool that you got to do both, though. You get to I'm see so both glad. Yeah, because yeah. of, the, like, the effort gave you something I think yeah really there was, significant and substantial there was a substantial the engagement that happens of taking pen to paper is totally different than the immediacy of click 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 send I just talked to somebody halfway around the world mm -hmm. I could talk to somebody on the moon by just going click 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 send you know but at this point I'm getting like I said I was getting postcards from fucking USSR there was there was still a wall up you know all this stuff was totally cool um and then, then all of this went on. And, you know, I'm listening to music and I'm loving music again. And at the same time, I'm like, it's really weird that these people who were my peers are now like on MTV. Mm -hmm. And they now, this is their living. Like, I tell people, oh, I played with Guar, like, couple of times and then I did this weird thing with the serial killers in Guar and people are like Guar really oh my god they're those weird and then but they're they're Guar and yeah. everybody knows Guar mm -hmm. and then it just it was it was foreign that it, it was alien to stand there and look at those people and know that like I was once part of what they were doing but they that's what they decided to do with their lives and they can actually do it where at some point I just, if I couldn't do it with them, then I just kind of didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And Was there a longing to, to be in, in totally, that position? Totally. Mm -hmm. It's back to that air guitar mindset that mm -hmm. I had had. There was still me getting in the car and, and listening to fucking... You know what? I didn't listen to Pagan Babies for the longest time because I didn't... My record player broke, my cassette player broke, and I only had one cassette of it and I didn't want to destroy it. I wanted to keep that for some sort of posterity. Mm -hmm. And then um, then I this guy I knew I worked with, he was like, 
he sits on about recording a, a cassette and put it on to CD so that he can play it. And I was like, oh my God, if I give you something, can you do me a favor and record it? And he did. And I was listening to the Pagan Maybe stuff again. And I went, and this is like 98 or 99. And I was like, oh my God, I totally fucking miss playing this. I miss doing this stuff. But then, you know, again, nothing. Nothing at all. Every once in a while, an exchange of a, of a letter or an email. And then, um, then in... 2006, some dude decides... Who, who was that? I don't know. Joe Gervasi <laughs> was like, hey, man, you know, this is, uh, yeah, American Hardcore comes out. I hear about it, and um, and I went to the movie theater, and I watched it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, this is before your call, and I'm like, what the fuck, man? Like, I'm looking at this movie that is about American Hardcore... And 90% of the footage that I'm looking at is shot in Philadelphia. And they talked about one band from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. They concentrated so little. I understand they couldn't have done five minutes on it because five minutes is a vast amount of time in a documentary. But it was one band and it was a blip. Yeah, We got totally screwed. Like, you could have even talked about how the bands were supported here. Because mm-hmm. there they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the source of all this the footage. The source of all this footage mm-hmm. happened there. The mm-hmm. guy who wrote the book was fucking part of it. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. This is bullshit. And then this change in direction in my life happens. And you call up and you're like, you know, hey this and it's a fucking great idea and then i it was a year i turned 40 and it was it was fucking amazing because then we started talking to one another again and then it was just like i know they had been playing doing their heel stuff but it was the idea of getting together and bacon baby's fucking it was awesome to be together and do stuff and um I, I hadn't played in 18 years. Every once in a while, I'd pick up my bass, but I'd sold all my equipment. I still had a bass. Every once in a while, I'd pick it up and be like, doo, 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 doo. but what, it meant nothing. And then um, then it just fucking changed. Then it was just like, I want to play again. And then in, on July 14th, 2007, fucking had an amazing time. Played fucking in front of a bunch of people who totally dug the shit that we were playing, and it meant something inside, and it felt warming to myself from a creative sense. It's and, a great mix of people to see folks from back in the day, yeah, and then young people, and then and young kind of people, everybody in between, you know, yeah, everybody. It was this this breath of like. So here's what I got out of it. I got. The, um, I got that sentimental of, you know, the sentimental aspect of, of friends getting together and then high school reunion kind of feel, oh my God, I haven't seen you in fucking ages and this and that. And then you get up there and play. But at the same time, I was looking at a scene and there was a music scene and it was thriving. It was still alive. There's still bands. There's still kids doing shit. And it was warming to know that like something that from 1983 to 1989 for six six years is a long time man Mm -hmm. something that meant 
everything to me. Every minute of the day had something to do with music that was of this nature and being part of it. And it was meaningful that I removed myself much in the same way that other people had surely removed themselves during the years. And it continued on because it was it actually meant something. And even through the popularity of your green days and your offsprings and, and all of that, there was still a thriving underground scene. Underground is just the only word I can find for it because, you know, people still to this day will always play in garages. They will always play in shitty clubs. They will never make more than $50 a show. And they'll be happy about that. And they'll be happy about it. But more importantly, they'll still be making music that is fucking genuine. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that like... Anybody who makes popular music doesn't feel it from their heart, but there's having been in the the trenches, there's there's a difference. There's a difference between you getting on a tour bus and driving somewhere and having a fucking green room full of food for you and a platter and you can bitch and moan that you don't eat meat and you only eat this and the vegetables have to look like this. Mm-hmm. There's a huge difference between that and having five dollars to spend for the entire day because you need gas money to get from here to here and I really hope the van doesn't break down. Right, right. There's a there's a world of difference and you got to look at those people who fucking tough that shit out and who smell and get out and play for 5 or 500 people, but they do it just because that's that was what their dream was and they still fucking do it mm-hmm. and it's going to go on forever as long as people can plug a guitar in somewhere, that shit's going to happen. You know, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I think that you you play you know you played a really crucial role in that. I mean, you you performed, uh, laid out the seeds. Young people, you know, people who were you know, my age or younger or older, you know, saw you and then went on to do stuff. Who then influenced other people. Uh, so you know, part of this uh, this continuum that keeps going. That's that's precisely it. So like, people gave me that, and and I've been lucky enough to have during this time of social media and like people with MySpace reaching out and being like, Take maybe it's all I got. So in 2007, the people who did contact us through MySpace would write letters that were like, your music did this to me on a rainy day when I really needed this. Man, I don't need to be a millionaire to have that mean anything like I don't need to be on that stage in front of a hundred thousand people at some festival anywhere in the world holy shit I did something and was part of something not necessarily something that I wrote or I I was part of something somebody says pagan babies boom boom memory 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 meaningful there you go yeah and there's thousands of people who have had this experience and taken it forward in their lives and yeah. you leave the document you know you've got the records that exist you know they're part of this pantheon of great hardcore records it's still You'll never know the experiences that people have with both seeing you perform and then this thing that you recorded. Yeah. You know, you put it out into the world, both the, the experience, which dissipates it at that moment in time, but lives in their head. And then the head, physical yeah. object that just kind of like moves all around the world yeah. in different hands and affects people in different ways. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go into eBay now just for the fun of it and type in Pagan Babies and see people fucking selling Pagan Baby records for like 50 bucks. Wow. I have one copy of that, and you guys are fucking selling yours for $50. That's insane. 
even funnier than that is to see somebody selling like a uniform choice shirt, but in the description, Pagan Baby's name is there in case from like a metadata standpoint that <laughs> right, like yeah. you made that connection that it is his uniform choice, youth of today, gorilla biscuits, pagan babies. Dude, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. You so just lumped yeah, us in with all of, of that. Yeah. I was part of something that meant something to you that mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and then, you know, it's it's the the act of Googling is funny because during the time where, you know, over the years since 2007, every once in a while I'll, I'll put in Pagan Babies and then just peruse and see what it's doing. I'm pretty good with the comma searching and you know search this term and that term but not this term not Elmore Leonard's pagan babies right. or not Courtney Love's pagan babies um, and does Courtney dude, Love have a pagan babies what is her her and one of the girls from Babes in Toyland were in a pagan babies after pagan babies pagan babies yeah. time for a lawsuit fuck that man <laughs> give me my royalties um, but I don't think they ever like recorded it they may have recorded stuff they didn't release anything um but yeah, I mean, seeing people, this this dude Gavin, he played with, I'm going to say he played with Youth of Today at one point. I don't know. He played with one of those New York bands. He's a super nice guy. He he was he was at a bunch of the Youth of Today shows. That's why I'm putting him in there and he played guitar. But I read an interview that he did for some magazine where he specifically said, bands like Pagan Babies did what bands don't do now. They hit the pavement. They got in the van and drove places. But then he pointed us out. He didn't say bands like Youth of Today or bands like Super Touch and bands. That he said Pagan Babies meant something. And when and when you read it in the context of what he's saying, he's like smaller bands who aren't popular understand understood then the only way that you do what it is you want to do is to mm-hmm. fucking do it. Mm-hmm. You got to do it. Right. And that's it. There's no fame. There's no glory to it. There's no money at the end of the red, you know, fucking golden pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's just that's what you want to do. So all of that coming around to we're playing in May on May 3rd. We played that Rowan show. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was a promise of playing at a cool place, playing with a fucking amazing band and getting a chance to play in front of a bunch of people that I would want to play in front of. I live in North Carolina, man. I get in a car and I drive for nine hours. I practice. I'm gonna turn around. I'm gonna drive for nine hours back. Mm-hmm. I'll be back at work on Monday. Man. In two weeks, I'm gonna get in a car. I'm gonna drive nine hours. <laughs> I'm gonna come back up. I'm gonna hang out with Thorazine and my friends. We're gonna play a show. I'm gonna get back in the car. I'm gonna drive back down to North Carolina. Because it's fucking it means something yeah yeah it's as punk rock as i think i can still be at my age and still be able to manage a life and be a responsible adult and this sounds like a perfect balance and it is i've yeah yeah i mean i can see how happy you are when you talk about this that it you know clearly kind of like (laughs) radiates out of you which i think is 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 fantastic i mean so much better than being you know sour and cynical and like oh fuck this shit you know back in the day we did it like you know who wants to hear you know grandpa bitching about back in the day bullshit when, and when like life continues to move forward, life continues to move forward for everybody. Not, and not to cut you off, but like when we were, so when we came up for that that show to play with Ruin, we played the next night um, at it at JR's in South Philly, and it's you know small bar, but like some dudes had to show up, 
some like kids set the show up. There was a couple, you know, maybe a hundred or so people came out to see it. Mm-hmm. And it, it meant something. That was just like, that's really what it means is there's still people who continue to do this. Yeah. And Philly doesn't forget either. I mean, like kids will come in to move to the city and then want to know like who were the, the classic Philly bands. And yeah. you know, they're going to hear Ruin. They're going to hear Pagan Babies. They're going to hear Serial Killers. You know, they're going to find out about all these bands because they want to know, you know, because what is they this? want to know, yeah, and, and I, I absolutely love that. So, I there is no bitterness from from where I stand in moving forward with all of my life. I've never looked back on anything and been fucking bitter about it because I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't had all the good and bad that happened behind me. Mm-hmm. So, the the pride that I feel for Philly hardcore is that I was part of it. The only way to be part of it was to insert myself and become part of it. You can't just stand on the edge of the pit. Every once in a while, you got to go in. Okay, well, I said I am the guy who likes to stand on the side. It is fun every once in a while to get fucking knocked around and be part of it and smile and sweat and do all of that. And I did that intermittently along the way and enjoyed every second of it through the good and through the bad, through the heartache of the end through the arguments that happened all during it. And, and even, you know, where we arrived today. It was just like, you know, so who who are we today? Pagan Babies are, you know, still playing. It's uh, Eric prefers to, you know, do his own thing now, which is totally fine. Bruce lives in the Moab, and, and that's totally fine. But, like, the heart of Pagan Babies, um, the band and the music that we play, people want to hear it and people want to play it. And Michael and Dan and myself, uh, along with Alex Bavone and Eric Perfect, totally fucking love doing it, you know? And, again, I'm I'm not only making a commitment to fucking getting in my car and driving up here for that, but these guys are also, like, they want to play as much as fucking possible as well. Because it's just, it's part of who we are and, and what... It's sharing your art with somebody in, in the biggest sense of it. And the... As long as that affects people, why wouldn't I continue to do it, you know, in, in this iteration of it as Pagan Babies? It's something else, you know, whether I joined another band or started another band, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm committed to doing this because I love doing this. And even the songs that I continue to like, you know, play around with and, and, and write, they're still, in my mind, they're Pagan Baby songs because the person that is, you know, I hope to sing them would be Michael and the people I hope to play them with and craft them with are still, you know, these dudes. It's fucking awesome. Super. Well, I guess we'll wrap up, but uh, one quick question. You have uh, children, right? Yeah. Uh, how do you, or how have you explained, you know, what this this thing was that you took part in and then kind of still in uh, some uh, way take part in, in, you know, this band? Do they have a concept of, of punk, hardcore? Do they know what the hell you do? Dude? They totally do. So I got two amazing kids. My son Alex is 17. My daughter Stella is 15. They both love music. They both love hardcore. Um, you know, just through listening to it in the car when we were driving to school and they were little or, you know, whatever. Have they seen you play? First time they got to see us play was in 2010 when we played at the Troc. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alex stood in the crowd and I looked down and I was like, that's my kid. Man. He's fucking standing there at the edge of the pit. He's fucking smiling his ass off. And Stella was on the, on the side of the stage. And they, they absolutely love it. Um... They, they hear me tell stories 
Um, they understand the adventure of it, and they understand just through talking with them and sharing it with them, um, you know, how, how amazing it is to just express yourself in whatever way that it happens to be, whether it is through music or whether it is through uh, poetry or, you know, however you write or, again, express yourself. Stella draws, so she likes, that's what she does. And Alex likes to write, and, you know, he's, he's great at writing compositions um, and poetry, and, and that's how he expresses himself. So there, there's that facet that I try to transfer to them of like, you know, the expression of my expression happens to be through music. Um, the adventure of like fucking getting in the car and, and driving, they, they totally love it. They, you know, they were there at the Union Transfer Show um, and we're just like, oh my God, this is so amazing. I'll say it. They're like, that's my dad right there. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's like, that's my kid right there. Both of my him and her right there. And it's, it's, it's tremendous. Um, and it's just as fun to like fucking sit in the car and have the Bronx blasting and have both of them fucking singing along to it, mm -hmm. you know, to just all of that. They, they, they understand the kind of, you know, everything I just laid out to you. I'm sure they have heard at some point in bits and pieces mm -hmm. during, you know, our, our drive somewhere, just hanging out at night watching TV or just sitting around talking. We like to talk a lot and do stuff like, you know, really good relationship. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this they they saw the 2010 show. They saw um, the one at Union Transfer. And then uh, they'll, they'll be up here in a couple of weeks, too. That's terrific. Well, I guess it's the best way to uh, to end this. Um, sure. So, my, thank you very much for doing this, and I sure. thank you also for playing the first show that I ever went to in the summer of '87. Wow! So I'm glad to have been part of that. So, you know, there's a lot that I have you to thank for. You are the catalyst for where I am sitting across from this table right now. Um, in that whole continuing the lineage and letting everything, letting that vine continue to get longer and grow and weave its way through people's lives, this is an extraordinarily important thing, um, you know, to get down and to, it, it allows other people to reflect on what has happened um, so that they know that there is a past, but, you know, I'm looking at all these books here, you know, history is written down in one fashion or another, and it's really important in moving forward. And I think something like this um, is really important, an, an important part of you know how music continues to thrive, whether it's in Philadelphia or anywhere else that people wrap their heads around this. You know, and I'm glad that you know, I'm super glad that you're doing this. Thank like you, this thank happens. you very much. I appreciate it. All right, cool. Thanks. Cool.